this. Ah, better now, better. Okay, good morning, everybody, and thanks uh, very much uh, for being here. We welcome you all. We've got a, um, a f full day and really a, a wonderful uh, group of uh, witnesses uh, before us, the first of which Dr. Zucker is here. So um, Governor Ridge and I will make some brief opening uh, statements, and then we'll go right to it. And our big challenge today will be to control ourselves from not having this hearing go until 9 or 10 p.m. tonight because we've got great, <laughs> great witnesses. Uh, this uh, Blue Ribbon uh, Study Panel on Biodefense uh, was uh, organized and is now housed here at the uh, Hudson Institute, which is our sponsor, to um, um, deal with uh, two forms of biological threats to the American people. Um, one is bioterrorist attacks, that is the use of biological weapons to, to attack uh, the United States. And the second, um, related because the, um, what is necessary for prevention, certainly for response and treatment is uh, quite, detection is quite similar, and that is naturally occurring uh, biological uh, diseases that uh, can become uh, pandemics. Uh, recent events demonstrate how willing and malevolent actors are to use um, weapons that were, uh, according to international law, banned decades uh, ago. Uh, the recent um, um, unfortunate tragic high-profile um, poisoning of a former KGB agent, Sergei Skripal, <clears throat> and his daughter, Yulia, <clears throat> presumably by agents of the Russian government, uh, is probably the most visible recent uh, event that could be uh, called a, a biological attack. Poison uh, does continue to be used by nation states, by terrorists and criminals to achieve the same goal, which is to uh, strike at adversaries and also to evoke terror in the general population. Uh, some of these uh, poisoning attacks uh, are discovered by medical, public health, law enforcement, intelligence, or military personnel uh, before they're uh, implemented or certainly fully implemented, but many more are uh, not discovered uh, in time because of inadequate uh, surveillance and uh, detection. Uh, most of the poisonings our panel uh, has examined, uh, no matter the type or perpetrator of agent used, have been transnational. Uh, that is, they, they have gone over national boundaries, um, and th that's the subject of today's meeting, which is transnational threats and uh, global uh, security. Uh, we've not yet figured out, I'm afraid, how to um, uh, prevent or deter these sorts of uh, actions, but but I'm hopeful that global efforts to improve surveillance, detection, and attribution will help. And, and I look forward to hearing about some of these from a really impressive group of uh, witnesses that we have today. The other side of this, uh, another transnational threat uh, that we're going to focus on is uh, infectious disease uh, pandemics. And it's uh, appropriate and uh, fitting that we're doing that because, as I'm sure most of you in the room know, 
This is the 100th anniversary of the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918. Uh, it's hard to get exact uh, numbers on the fatalities, but I've seen uh, numbers that suggest, that say it's at least 50 million died in that uh, pandemic, and maybe as many as 100 million. And if I may be personal, and my colleagues on, on the panel have heard me say this, my paternal grandmother died in that flu epidemic in New York. My father was three years old. He has really, he had no memories of her. And of course, I never knew her. And when I think about the, we're just one of 50 million of the extent to which her uh, early death from this affected um, my father and our family. And you just multiply it. The consequences are really uh, disastrous. While that biological event occurred a century ago, we've not yet overcome the ability of influenza viruses to sicken and kill a lot of people. The poultry industry uh, and the connection of uh, a animal health to human health is really quite uh, striking to me. And one of the things that I've most learned in my work on this panel, the poultry industry has taken multiple hits over the past few years with many countries, including our own, having had to cull uh, tens of thousands, really ultimately hundreds of thousands of poultry to prevent the spread of avian influenza. And the rate of the H32 infection was four times greater than H1N1 was in 2009, and we thought that was a, that was a pandemic. Uh, last year's flu vaccine, just to put this in context, uh, which most of us had, that is, we had the vaccine, was only 42% effective, uh, I gather, because of one vaccine strain mutation that resulted from the old egg-based manufacturing process we still use today for vaccines. So there, too, we, we need more work, and we need it quickly. With the threat of uh, pandemic influenza uh, foremost in our minds, we know that many other diseases currently do and could produce pandemics. Um, again, uh, working with uh, Governor Ridge and the other members of the panel, I've learned a lot in this. I recently uh, spent some time with a doctor who focuses on um, malaria. And uh, by, by coincidence, today, today has been declared World Malaria Day by the World uh, Health Organization. But the doctor said to me that, and maybe Dr. Zucker, you can <laughs> validate or, or tell me these numbers are wrong, that every year um, there are 200 million people who get malaria, and there are probably a half million who die from it uh, every year. Uh, despite our basically having eradicated malaria here in the United States, our country still deals with thousands of cases of malaria in travelers every year. So, it's, so it remains a pandemic. Uh, and some, we're not just talking today about diseases that affect humans and animals. I want to add that Dr. Stack from Kansas State University is going to be discussing uh, the danger and threat of wheat blast. Uh, wheat blast pandemic that moved quickly throughout the world would be devastating uh, to our economies, but also to our so uh, societies in general. These are serious problems uh, that are transnational, they're truly global. Um, a point that I know Dr. Uh, Osterholm, our keynote lunch speaker, will, will address, and so we look forward to uh, hearing him. Uh, America needs to better prepare uh, 
not for sure, but we have an interest in seeing that other countries prepare as well because of the extent to which we're interacting so much more than we did in 1918 with people uh, from around the world to our benefit, but there is risk in that um, when an infectious disease is spreading. And of course, international agencies also have a role to play. That's why we're very glad to have Colonel Terry Taylor here and look forward to his uh, uh, discussion about what the United Nations can do as, as a part of this. Uh, as I said, we've got a first-rate group of speakers today, witnesses, if you will, who will help us fulfill the responsibility that this panel has taken on and accepted, which is to oversee and monitor existing uh, biological threats and act to make recommendations to the public and private sector about how to improve our defenses against those threats um, before um, it's uh, too late. So we, we're here to learn, uh, and then we're here to be uh, advocates, hopefully constructive advocates. It's been a real honor to work on this panel now for the last few years, and one of the great honors is to co-chair it with a, a dear friend and a great public servant, uh, Governor Tom Ridge. Governor? Thank you, Senator. Uh, I echo your comments with regard to our colleagues on the panel. I thank all of you for uh, joining us this morning. The Senator talked a lot about transnational biological threats and pandemics. I'd like to share just a couple of thoughts with you uh, about the threat from uh, nation states. We're going to spend a little bit of time talking about that today as well. Way back when, several years ago, when our panel first started, uh, we referred to three specific types of biological threats. Naturally occurring, accidentally released, and intentionally introduced. And when it came to intentionally introduced, we mostly, we generally focused on bioterrorism. After a few months, though, it became clear that we needed to emphasize the threat from both terrorists and nation states. Uh, we looked at the State Department's assessments regarding compliance with the Biological and Toxin Weapons Convention and saw that one year the State Department said they were worried about China, Iran, Russia, North Korea, and Syria. And then a year or two later, only Russia made the list. Personally, I don't quite understand how the others became immune from that list. <laughs> For one editorial comment, I suspect that like a lot of other international treaties and conventions, when some of our foes sign them, uh, there's no intent to comply. As a matter of fact, before the ink is even dry, they continue to use for whatever nefarious purposes they've designed these systems in absolute abandonment of whatever principles around some of these international conventions. Now, I know that's uh, the assessment they use is uh, very strong over at the uh, State Department. Um, and uh, I suspect that this, uh, these countries will be back on again shortly. But a few days ago, uh, General Dunford, chairman of the Joint Chiefs, spoke at a press conference and said that, that the, uh, reminded us that the, we had bombed the Syrian Scientific Research Center because it was known to be researching, developing, producing, and testing both chemical and biological weapons. Obviously, with that information, I would hope that the State Department would put Syria back on the list. One of the other countries you have to be worried about is North Korea. Uh, it's pretty clear when the Supreme Leader, King Jong-un, is walking around. He's touring some of those labs. There was a, 
a photo with him showing the world the shiny new dual-use equipment. Dual-use equipment in one of his labs would certainly be used to produce biological agents as well. And obviously we can't afford to downplay North Korea's role, not just in the nuclear world, but in potentially with a transnational biological threat. I think the time for assuming that nation states and terrorist organizations are not involved in developing biological weapons is over. Somewhat, again, an editorial comment, I think it's somewhat naive to think some of these countries would have abandoned them to start with. So we're looking forward to uh, Ken Luango's thoughts on biological weapons nonproliferation later this morning and Alan Rudolph's views on bio biological threat reduction this afternoon. Uh, we noted as well that our new National Security Director, John Bolton, takes the biological threat as seriously as this panel does. We look forward to the White House uh, finishing and releasing the National Biodefense Strategy as part of the recommendations that the uh, Commission has made. Uh, we had hoped to have it completed by the end of last year. We know they're working on it. It's, we still have not, uh, we think there's some momentum there. We're still looking for the finished product. And our, we got a couple other speakers, Dr. James Lawler and Beth Cameron, former White House staffers, perhaps can shed some light on the challenges that our friends in the White House who are committed to the strategy are confronted with in order to pull that all together. Uh, this is a good day. Uh, this is a good day because we have a variety of uh, great speakers with excellent credentials and much and important words to share. And I say to uh, uh, Dr. Zucker and to those that succeed you, one of the reasons this panel, I believe, has gained so much credibility and traction on the Hill is that the recommendations we've made have been based upon the learnings and experiences and observations made by the men and women from in this area who have testified before us over the past couple of years. It's, and uh, this list of the speakers we have today just adds to that uh, credibility. Now, our first speaker, uh, uh, Dr. Zucker, Marvel was correct. Give me, a quick, give me a snapshot of the bio. This is the quality of the people we have before us. Multiple degrees, medical degree, legal degrees, uh, HHS, World Health Organization, Commissioner of Health in New York, multiple trips to different parts of the world on very specific medical, uh, dealing with very specific medical matters. We think it's uh, great to have him leading off as our first speaker today in this panel dealing with transnational biological threats and global security. Doctor, welcome and thank you. Oh, there we go. Sorry. Thank you. Um, I, uh, it's a pleasure to be here, and I will approach this from the standpoint of, of managing an infectious disease outbreak, and particularly what we've done in New York on, on several of these uh, cases. This is a more of a high-level view of some of these issues, and it's a little bit on the creative side as well for um, uh, morning. So uh, it all begins in, in one place, uh, one person, one infection, and if it's serious enough, uh, one death. Uh, in the case of uh, H5N1 or bird flu, uh, it was 1997 in Hong Kong uh, with the anthrax crisis, as we all know. It was 2001 in Florida. And in the case of SARS in 2002 in the Guangdong province of southern uh, China. With H1N1, 2009 in California, and in the, with Ebola, 2013. Um, 
uh, as well uh, in Western Africa, and Zika in 2016 in Brazil. And from these locations, uh, the diseases and the threats spread, uh, Washington, D.C., Toronto, Cambodia, Egypt, Indonesia, Thailand, Taiwan, Singapore, Vietnam, Mexico, New Zealand, Liberia, Sierra Leone, Spain, Mali, and Brazil most recently. Uh, in public health, the question becomes whose job is it to spot an outbreak, whose job is it to treat it and to stop it, and is it the local authorities, the local and county health departments, is it the state or in other parts of the world, the provinces, is it the federal government, or one might think it's an international matter. The truth is that an infectious disease outbreak is everyone's business. It belongs to the World Health Organization, it belongs to the Health and Human Services Department, the White House, CDC, FEMA, belongs to Homeland Security, the Department of Defense, the 50 health departments in our country, the county health departments, and the local health departments. And it also belongs to Doctors Without Borders and Gates Foundation, the International Red Cross, Project Hope, Oxfam, uh, the International Medical Corps, and so many other NGOs that are working uh, in the area of public health. And it belongs to the health departments of any individual nation as well as their local public health authorities. And from there, we move forward to the entire global health community, which has a hands-on uh, approach to infectious disease outbreaks, controlling it and spreading it. In this slide, the CDC seems to uh, be an outlier there because CDC is usually in multiple places at one time. Uh, in our holy, a highly globalized world, we, could, uh, we know it could be a matter of just hours before an infectious disease in one corner of the world winds up here in our backyard, and we need an all-hands-on-deck approach to this. The most effective public health response are those that involve local, state, national, and international partners working together. Exactly how they play out depends on the disease, what's happening, and how the outbreak is evolving. As much as this is science, there's an art to managing an infectious disease outbreak as well, and especially, especially when an, an outbreak is on an international level like Ebola or SARS or Zika and the multiple flus that we've experienced uh, in recent years, particularly this past year's flu season, which was uh, uh, quite significant. At every stage of an outbreak, there are three vital overarching tasks that we must approach. Clinical management, treating the sick and preventing illness in the exposed, consequence management, preserving public health and safety and minimizing the consequences of an outbreak, and communications management, relying on a cohesive and a consistent message about the outbreak without inciting unnecessary fear and anxiety. The burden of the first task, clinical management, initially falls on the local authorities in most cases, often with the health of local health care providers. I'll mention this in a second. It's up to them to report the infectious disease to state authorities and then work with the providers on the front line to safely diagnose and treat it. And once a, a sentinel case of an infectious disease is detected, local authorities put the providers on alert to watch for others in healthcare facilities, assess, triage, patient screening algorithms come about, uh, and much more. And then they have to treat the sick. They need to avoid the chaos that can occur. Healthcare facilities may see a surge of potentially infectious patients and a need for surge capacity. At the same time, local health departments and officials also have to prevent illness in those who are exposed, be it with antibiotics, antivirals, or vaccines. 
New York State has uh, dealt with a great number of these over the past six months to a year. We've dealt with hepatitis A, hepatitis C, mumps, measles, meningitis, and flu. Some of these are, are not transnational, although I have to tell you the meningitis case uh, and some of the uh, measles cases, including the other day, were coming from, one was from Australia and one was from Europe, so we've seen this as well. I haven't been on the front line in some of these cases, whether it was uh, anthrax years ago and SARS, bird flu, Ebola, Zika. Uh, the clinical management uh, in action is very important and how our far federal partners help out. Uh, as we all recall with anthrax, we were obviously on heightened alert as that was after September 11th, shortly thereafter. Local health officials and private physicians didn't wait for CDC information. Local authorities also closed office buildings when the first victims were exposed. And then there was all the issues of uh, post-exposure prophylaxis. HHS worked closely with the District of Columbia to initiate the nation's largest ever mass medication program, handing out over 17,000 um, um, uh, medications to 17,000 people. The local response is critical for containing an outbreak. In response to SARS, uh, countries like Vietnam and city-states like Singapore rapidly initiated strategies to identify and isolate persons uh, who fit the case definition and were able to trace and quarantine their contacts and contain the spread of disease. A delayed response in China made it difficult to conduct uh, contact tracing. As for H1N1, New York State Department of Health engaged stakeholders from many agencies. We had 58 local health departments involved, 145 hospitals outside of New York City, 946 pharmacies, 23 federal qualified health centers, and 1,152 long-term care facilities. Uh, 6 million H1N1 vaccines were received and 1.7 million were vaccinated. What about Ebola? As you recall, the local response to in, in Guinea was highly flawed with Ebola because it originated in a country with a very troubled healthcare infrastructure, which makes things difficult. It was a shortcoming that led to the nation's largest Ebola, uh, the history's largest Ebola outbreak. And that specific region had never experienced Ebola uh, before in that region. However, uh, other deadly diseases with similar presentations were endemic to that region of Africa, like cholera and malaria. Investigating outbreak requires balancing existing knowledge against the possibility of something new, which didn't happen in that scenario. You know, when a, a two-year-old boy in, in Guinea came down with fever, vomiting, and diarrhea, and black stools, uh, uh, and died too late, two days later, didn't exactly set off the alarm bells, nor did the death of his sister, or his, or his mother, or his grandmother, a family friend, until ultimately it was three months later when the little boy death when uh, things started to spiral out of control and international public health officials realized they had a serious crisis on their hands. That gave the virus months to elude investigators and spread. It might have been a different story if the case erupted here in the United States, and we surely hope in, in New York that uh, it would be different in New York. Uh, in New York, our healthcare infrastructure is much stronger than in some parts of the, uh, many parts of the world, most parts of the world. We have sophisticated medical centers, we have highly trained physicians, we have well-equipped labs, uh, that are working, and we rely on them to send uh, reportable diseases to the local health departments. Uh, our Wadsworth lab works uh, diligently with so many others, and I'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, in New York, the counties, which include the city of New York, obviously, are required to report any suspicious disease activity to the state. We use the Communicable Disease Electronic Surveillance System. We use the Electronic Clinical Lab Reporting System to enhance surveillance. Reporting of suspected cases is mandated under New York State Public Health Law. We look for the resources of the infection. We work to identify and contact people who may need prophylaxis so we can stop the disease from spreading. If there's an outbreak, local and state health departments take preventive action. We saw this in New York City when we had the first case of Ebola. 
Long before the patient arrived uh, home in October of 2014, the city and state were laying the groundwork for this. We had protocols in place for, trans uh, for transporting a patient. We had protocols in place for safe lab testing and protocols for monitoring contacts. Uh, that's what made for the smooth handling of that first case. Even after the patient arrived, New York City continued to monitor the 114 healthcare workers who had cared for them. The state has additional responsibilities. Let me share what we did. Much like uh, other states, New York State provides staff support. The state takes a greater or lesser role depending on how well the local health departments are managing the outbreak and how far it spreads. If it spreads far enough, state and local health departments will activate their incident management system. And like most states, New York also provides technical expertise and lab testing to determine how individual cases are related. The federal government was keenly aware of what was happening, uh, and we all know that when it becomes an issue of national security, uh, large outbreaks uh, of this nature, bioterrorism, as you're talking about today, our federal partners are pulled in immediately. We might need their expertise on rare diseases like Ebola, uh, and we might need their help with PCR testing. When it came to Ebola and Zika as well, New York worked closely with the CDC. And we asked CDC staff to come to New York site visits to assist with the investigation of Ebola. But the CDC needs our expertise as well. CDC asked our state public health lab, the Wadsworth Lab, to help handling uh, and testing for our neighboring states during the Zika crisis. Uh, our lab upstate is, uh, uh, is well known uh, in our, in nationally as well as uh, um, internationally. CDC used our hospital review process to inform the national process that they used to designate Ebola treatment centers. The truth is, it is a mutually dependent relationship when it comes to managing a disease outbreak. Large public health crises can quickly become multi-agency responses that require coordination across many agencies. It's never the total responsibility of one agency or one layer of government. The clinical management of the outbreak by a city, uh, state, federal officials is very much intertwined. They use our knowledge and we use theirs. More recently in 2016, we responded to the Zika epidemic. The World Health Organization declared Zika a public health emergency, uh, emergency of international concern due to the emerging clusters of microcephaly cases. The first reported case of locally acquired Zika were made in August of 2016 in the states of Florida and Texas. With no vaccine or medication available, we responded promptly and with great efficiency. Okay, so next, let's, uh, the second part is the consequence management. Uh, managing consequences means working to protect public health and safety, restore government services, and provide emergency relief. And again, it's a task that everyone shares, but from a different vantage point. The ultimate goal is to stem the spread of the disease. In the aftermath of 9-11, when we were on high alert for bioterrorism, those of us in the federal government heard a lot from the states. Everyone contacted HHS asking for strategies on what to do about a bioterrorist attack. And I know others will speak about this later today. Before that, a few thoughts about terrorism and bioterrorism the way we do now. In fact, 20 years ago, I suspect if eight people got sick in a restaurant, we'd automatically think it was food poisoning. And today, we would wonder, could this be a terrorist at work? But all the worrying led to a lot of preparedness and planning. And we realized this is a mutually dependent relationship, a two-way street. Most states have well-rehearsed strategies for dealing with a public health crisis. They can do a lot to stop the spread of infectious disease. They can quarantine someone who might be sick and even force them to accept treatment. They can make major decisions about large crowds, like canceling a sporting event or arena uh, concert. They can call up the National Guard to help manage transportation security. 
In the Anthrax Square, we know we pondered some of these questions. How do we contact people who have been exposed? When do we reopen the Capitol? When, when do we, uh, how long do we keep the post office shut down? Whatever we do, our decisions can make, have marked political as well as financial repercussions. So what did we do with Ebola in 2014 or Zika in 2016? Before Ebola um, uh, got to New York, the governor granted me the authority to issue a commissioner's order. The orders detailed exactly how hospitals, clinics, funeral homes, healthcare workers, and emergency services would handle Ebola. This was a big issue. We spelled out exactly how ambulances would safely transport a patient. It detailed exactly how we remove waste from a patient's hospital room, and it spelled out precisely how we'd sa uh, safely handle lab specimens. The commission's orders allowed me to take immediate action without going through a tedious process to address violations of laws or regulations. If the situation escalates, the state may need to the control the outbreak, and clearly at that point, what ends up happening, we need to bring in our federal partners. With HHS comes additional resources and expertise. As the federal government, CDC, FDA, NIH, specifically NIAID, uh, views this as a national perspective. It helps us uh, regionally. I see a most important role of the federal government to provide guidance, ideally expeditiously implementing one message for all affected jurisdictions during communicable disease outbreak is beneficial. The feds, as we know, can impose travel restrictions as they did uh, when they urged the U.S. residents to avoid non-essential travel to Sierra Leone, Guinea, uh, and Liberia because of Ebola. They can stop foreigners from entering the country uh, if they have a communicable disease that threatens public health. And as we know, when an event overwhelms the state of local responses, the president can evoke the Stafford Act, which declares national or man-made catastrophes as well as pandemic flus and communicable diseases a major disaster or emergency. And it lets the state governors ask the president to declare an emergency. Either way, the act um, unleashes a cascade of billions of dollars to help meet the needs of the state and local governments. So in March of 2016, within um, a month and a half of the World Health Organization's declaration regarding Zika, Governor Cuomo announced the New York State Department of Health's six-step plan for a Zika action plan. In fact, we were working on this plan in December of 2015 when we first heard of the concerns that were emanating from Brazil. New York State's response to Zika included coordination between the governor's office, the Department of uh, Health, the Department of Environmental Conservation, and the state emergency management. The six-point plan included eliminating mosquito breeding sites, monitoring of the Aedes mosquito with special trapping and testing. To date, no mosquito pools have been tested positive for Zika in New York. Distributing over 20,000 Zika protection kits for pregnant women to healthcare providers. Deploying Zika rapid response teams which were made up of over 100 staff members, issuing emergency regulations requiring all local health departments to submit action plans, and launching a major public health awareness campaign, which resulted in us responding to over 8,700 Zika-related calls from the public. In all, New York State communicated with providers and local health departments. We issued emergency regulations requiring all local health departments to submit plans, and in essence, this is truly a dance of power, a dance of authority. If you have a rapidly spreading contagious infectious disease, you've got more than a national emergency. You do have an international one. And as the WHO calls it, public health emergency of international concern. And for H5N1, uh, we had an opportunity, at least I had an opportunity to look at this from HHS and WHO. Let's look at it from the WHO side. WHO is clearly not a governmental agency, but it can make resolutions, it can write treaties, and through the international health regulations, it can impose regulatory action. In fact, the IHR is the only legally binding global agreement that involves 194 countries, including all members of the WHO. It provides a broad mandate, 
with the following goal, to prevent, protect, and I quote, uh, to prevent, protect against, control, and provide a public health response to the international spread of disease in ways that are commensurate with and restricted to public health risks and which avoid unnecessary interference with international traffic and trade. Probably took uh, several months to write that. Having worked at the WHO, I'm sure this took a while. That actually is the ceiling of the, of the United Nations in Geneva, that piece of artwork. The IHR spells out exactly when a nation must report a disease which involves four criteria. Does the event have a serious public health impact? Is the event unusual, unexpected? Is it at risk of spreading internationally? Is there a potential for international spread or travel restrictions? If the answer is yes to two of these questions, countries are required to notify the WHO. The IHR has a list of diseases that must be scrutinized closely with a protocol. That's cholera, viral hemorrhagic fever like Ebola, yellow fever, and West Nile, and those among that category. But they also have a list of diseases that must be reported even if there's just one case, and that's the next list. SARS, new influenza viruses, wild-type polio, and obviously smallpox if uh, hopefully it'll never come back. In fact, it was the SARS uh, outbreak that led to the revisions of the original IHR, which only covered cholera, plague, yellow fever, and smallpox before its eradication. Countries don't have to know the source or cause of an outbreak to report it to WHO. The goal is early detection and a public health response before disease spreads internationally. And then it's up to the Director General of WHO to determine if the event is a public health uh, emergency of international concern. Uh, since the IHR's update in 2005, we had four public health emergencies at that level, H1N1 in 2009, in 2014 the wild polio virus and Ebola, and 2016 Zika. When an outbreak gets to this point, the IHR requires WHO to work with the countries to develop a public health response. And that includes providing information to the public, which leads us to the third and the last major task of any infectious disease outbreak. What are we going to do to tell the 325 million Americans about the infectious disease outbreak when it comes to communication? What are we going to tell the 25 million people who watch the nightly news? What are we going to tell the nation's 1,300 daily newspapers? And what message will the 303,000 public health workers convey? We also have 2.2 billion Facebook users who ask about a uh, outbreak. Communication has to happen early. The message has to be crisp and clear, and its communications really comes down to trust. The public needs to know that they can trust the person telling them the information. The information has to be clear and concise. Without good communication, there's mixed messages, and we've all seen this. People need to know that the information is coming from a reliable source. It's important that the public health authorities at every level report fully and accurately anything about uh, that they know about the outbreak. Open and honest communication needs to be there while explaining why some details must remain undisclosed. And they must listen to the public's concern, their confusion, and objections, so that the communications becomes a dialogue not just a one-way conversation. That's the communication that creates order. That's why I'm proud to say New York always aims to do this and tries to and does. Though I experienced the challenges during my communications with the press during a local Legionella outbreak uh, several years back. However, in Ebola, with our partners, which include the Greater New York Hospital Association, we hosted an Ebola information session with healthcare workers. We heard their concerns and their fears, and we responded. The goal in outbreak communication isn't just about controlling the outbreak, it's about considering the impact on people working in hospitals, kids in, in school and in college, and travelers from other countries. Bad information can lead to anxiety and fear, as we know, and social disruption, and social disruption clearly hampers any efforts to control an outbreak. One of the biggest challenges is that everyone works on a different clock. 
The press moves at one speed, politics moves at another, and public health at a third speed. As we know, it takes a certain amount of time for bacteria to grow or for viruses to spread. But that time is very different from the time a reporter needs to post a blog, for a politician to reach out to the constituents, for a health department to issue an alert. We call it during anthrax and bird flu, we primarily use cell phones and emails to communicate. During Ebola, it was text, and with Zika, information was being conveyed by tweets. So in conclusion, every outbreak is different. Every response is different. The job of the public health professional across America is to protect the people who make up this great nation. As New York's health commissioner, it's my job to oversee the health and the safety of 20 million residents. Whatever, whenever and wherever the next outbreak is, one thing we know, vigilance and collaboration is key. The reality is preventing and monitoring and managing an outbreak is a 24 uh, hour a day, 365 days a year job. And it happens at every lo level, local, state, provincial, national, international. And working together, we can be prepared to stay on top of this. It is truly the only way for hope uh, to be successful in this. And I thank you very much for the opportunity to speak today. Thanks, doctor. That was great. Was, the, was that uh, last slide, was it OI? Oh, yes. Yeah, yes, okay, good. <laughs> I mean, it didn't stand, it wasn't initial standing. <clears throat> it was an expletive. Yes, it was. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I, I, that's a, one of the greatest PowerPoint presentations I've ever seen. I would call, I feel as if you've taken, not only taught me a lot, you've taken me to a great art museum Th along you. the way. <laughs> uh, so um, uh, we've got probably a little more than 20 minutes of questioning. Uh, if we keep on schedule, I'm just going to limit myself to one. I, I, w I was interested in your uh, really impressive uh, biography that you had, uh, have taught biosecurity law at Georgetown. So I, I wanted to ask you if there are one or two uh, specific um, recommendations you would make for um, changing biosecurity law uh, either at the federal or state level? I, I think that, it's um, a great question. Um, I think, uh, as mentioned, that the um, we have some great laws in place here. My, um, my concern sometimes is, and what I've noticed in the state, is that some of the public health laws in some states vary from, from one area to another, and whether there could be better collaboration across the states on some of these issues. And granted, you know, the federal government can step in and obviously has um, uh, the key, uh, the Stafford Act and other things that they can, they can utilize. But I have found that sometimes uh, when we're working in one of these issues, uh, whether we can work uh, better with our neighboring states. Okay, that's really an interesting idea and one that we've not dealt with uh, in our group. So we're, we'll take that seriously, which is to establish some kind of multi-state compact or try to blend the laws so because obviously uh, we're focused on transnational threats there's clearly trans state threats people are moving I mean uh, I, I noticed this um, although it's not a biosecurity issue but with the opioid epidemic yeah um, and we work with other other commissioners in the area uh, in um, northeastern part of the United States and um, there's there's variabilities in between what one state and another state is doing, and these really do cross over. Uh, and I recognized also when we were dealing with Ebola uh, as well. And and that inhibited your ability to do everything you wanted to do in New York, I take it. Well, we try to push forward, and obviously in New York, uh, but uh, granted, some will travel from one area to uh, to another. Sure. Uh, and uh, and some of the things we're trying to do do on opioids is a little bit more of a um, regional area. Okay, thanks. That's helpful, Governor. Yeah, thanks. Thank you. 
Uh, doctor, at the outset, you, know, you talked about uh, roles and responsibilities. How do we identify it? Uh, that trans how do we identify that biological threat? How do we uh, stop it in its place? How do we treat people? And then how do we reduce the impact uh, in the broader community? And I thought about you and your role in, in New York, and I thought about New York City, and then I think about San Francisco and L.A. and Miami. We have major metropolitan areas that are international points of entry. What are the lessons learned or the mechanisms used in, in New York City? We've got people from all over the world flooding into your, well, not all over parts of the world, but most parts of the world, flooding into uh, the city. What are the elements you use or the mechanisms used to spot these potential problems from the international population that rushes to New York? So this becomes a, a very much about collaboration. So in, in the state, obviously, we have the Port Authority, uh, which falls under the, under the governor, uh, and uh, the MTA, which falls under the governor, working with the city. Uh, and we also have um, working with some of the issues of transportation. So I think some of the ways to spot it is, is increased vigilance. And, and, we, and I go back to the issues with Ebola, because that was a great example where we were dealing with the uh, international airports, um, uh, JFK, but also Newark and our neighboring state, uh, and to sort of figure out how we can uh, identify individuals. What we did at that point was we set up a uh, the federal government, also CDC, had a, a um, center at the airport, but we also had a center at the airport to monitor people if there was any concern that came through. And then we worked closely with the uh, with local community, both the city and all of our other counties in the state, to try to figure out if somebody came back from one of those regions, uh, how would we monitor them, and to call and check on them on a regular basis. As I understand, uh, as commissioner, in response to Ebola, you developed a protocol among New York State hospitals, right? So, and was each was each hospital um, was that protocol embedded into every hospital, or did you have like centers of excellence or centers right. that were directed specifically to that uh, threat? So that's a, a very interesting question. We had ten centers for for Ebola. But the, the, and we worked closely with the hospital associations, both in the city as well as uh, upstate. Uh, they, then it comes back to some of the, back to law a little bit, because there are certain criteria in order to set up um, a, uh, a place to treat Ebola patients. So some of the hospitals basically had uh, two or three beds, uh, and it was really labor, quite labor intensive. One of the other things we did do uh, with those, ho for all hospitals, was we called in all the hospital workers and had a, um, uh, a conference in the Java Center, the large center, as I'm sure you know, in, in the city, uh, for the hospital workers, because there was a great concern of the uh, risk to those um, healthcare workers. Uh, and so we uh, went through particularly about um, how to put on protective equipment. The challenge that I find that happens in these situations is that Ebola, even though it wasn't that long ago, the um, institutional memory and, and, and individual's memory about what has to be done uh, sort of starts to uh, wane a little bit because many other things have come along. So what we've asked is that the hospitals continue, particularly those 10 centers, to make sure that they continue to train individuals on a regular basis. The hospitals still have those centers there, and hopefully we'll never have a, another uh, Ebola uh, outbreak. Um, but it, there may be something else that happens. And so, you know, I've had an opportunity to go back to those uh, areas and take a look at those facilities uh, and to be sure that they're, uh, they're up to, um, uh, st still up and operating. Uh, um, and they, they have been using them just uh, for, for other things as well. So that's been very helpful. 
Have you given thought, uh, we recommended on the commission of a, a national biodefense health system. Not every hospital can be equipped uh, to deal with all uh, transnational biological threats, but take that model and build almost like centers of excellence to deal with biodefense nationally. Does that make any sense? I mean, that, that would work. I mean, the hospitals, I have found some of the challenges for the hospitals are um, the bigger medical centers can sort of absorb some of this, but, but the worry that happened was that some of the hospitals were worried that if someone was to be treated in, in one of these hospitals or if they had an infectious disease, the worry is that maybe other patients will, will say, well, I'm not going to that hospital, and that could impact on, on their bottom line a little bit. And so we recognize that and we're sensitive to that issue as well. Okay, one final question. I don't mean to dominate this, but I'm, when you mentioned Ebola, it, it brought uh, uh, back to mind uh, one of the briefings I had within the first couple of weeks. I was in the White House before we even created the department. And one of the pathogens that the intelligence community was worried about was Ebola. Fast forward about 15 years. Uh, back then, the intelligence community was worried about it. 15 years later, it reared its ugly, fatal head, and there was still some challenges associated with identifying and treating it. Someone in your position, with your experience, do you have access on a top secret basis to the intel community so that the 20 million citizens in New York know that you, in charge of their health care, have a relationship with Intel and that they're worried about these particular pathogens. Do you have access to that? I personally don't, but I assume, you know, some of my superiors may. Uh, Very good. So I, um, on that. No, I, I, I think it's critically important. I mean, I, for me, there, there was always a fundamental concern I had that 15 years left between when the Intel community said, hey, Tom, the country ought to be worried about that 15 years later. We've got it. And people are still kind of scrambling to deal. Well, you, you, you came up, and you and the governor came up with a six-point plan based on the emergency. Actually, you were anticipated, as I recall correctly. Right. But not everybody anticipates those things. So I just glad to know that you've got access to that information. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Governor. You know, as uh, commissions and panels go, this is one of the smaller ones that's ever been created. But uh, if I may say, excluding myself, it's very high quality. So I'm going to ask my colleagues. Um, uh, three of whom are here. The only one who couldn't be here is former Congressman Jim Greenwood. Uh, and we have a back bench over there of real experts, too. But I'm, uh, on this group, I'm going to ask you if you have a question or two, and we'll start with former Senate Majority Leader, uh, my leader, Tom Daschle. Well, thank you, Joe. Uh, let me join my colleagues in complimenting you, Dr. Zucker, on a very impressive presentation. And uh, I'm glad we have a printout of uh, your your uh, PowerPoint, because uh, I agree with Joe, the artwork especially was <laughs> laudable. But I, I like the title, too, The Art of Managing Infectious Disease Outbreaks. And I, uh, I want to be cognizant of our limited time. So I'd like to focus, if I could, just on the response aspects of management. And there are two in particular that I think are particularly challenging. And that is the management of information and the management around coordination. Um, information uh, from past experience, I think, is one of the biggest uh, frustrations uh, in that uh, with social media in particular, there is no control over what is said and who says it, and there's no real single authority on how we address the truth. And I think in these cir circumstances, truth and, and 
and good information is critical to the success of response so i i that's number one and number two you started with your presentation very effectively in my view by articulating that it's everyone's responsibility to do this the problem is i think as we look at the fact that it is everyone's responsibility we tend to be siloed in looking at our responsibilities from a very narrow lens you had a very impressive array of those agencies and and authorities that are that are responsible what i worry about is the lack of meaningful coordination uh, at all levels both international national and even local so could you talk about both of those challenges the information and how we effectively coordinate, and if possible, give us some thoughts on what we need to do in addition to what we're doing today to address those two concerns. Senator, I think the point you make about uh, social media and the information uh, is something I've experienced in the course of the past uh, four years as, as the commission. Things have been picking up a pace that's even faster, and every time we've had a situation, whether it was Ebola, we had a regional issue in Le uh, Legionella, which was obviously not, it was primarily uh, New York, um, and Zika, I've noticed that things have moved at a faster and faster pace. I think that this is one of those areas where we almost have to make sure the public is aware of, of what are reliable sources. We have reliable sources out there. We have the CDC. I mean, I have been pushing hard in New York, and I reach out to all the doctors and all the health professionals in the state on a, on a monthly basis to make sure they realize that we have our websites, and that's where they should turn to information. My personal experience is I find many people, just as a physician, a lot of times people will call me and say, I looked up on Google, and this is what I think I have. And it's like, well, when are you going to check with a real doctor and not Google? Uh, and so I think this is what the normal response is, that people do this, and they and they go to look uh, look at things uh, quickly. And, and I, um, I think that what we can do is to educate the public about these are the these are the key sources for information and that before you go looking somewhere else or listening to others recognize that this is where the correct data is um, then there's the challenge also with communication about the fact that people want answers as I mentioned quickly and they do turn to uh, whether it's a, um, an email or, or a text uh, and some of this some of the biological systems move at a certain pace and it's very hard to sort of try to explain to someone that it will take an extra 24 hours, and even some of the technologies we have with PCR, that doesn't really solve the problem. And, and I will just, you know, as an aside, you know, when we had the Legionella issue, yeah, the PCR will tell you that it was there. It doesn't mean it's alive or dead. It just says it was there, and we're going to still have to grow it. And, and sometimes it's an issue of communicating with the press and communicating with others on that. Uh, regarding coordination, I think that this is, um, again, there are a lot of players involved, uh, and I think that that has... Um, exponentially increased. Uh, years ago, there was a handful of international organizations, uh, and everyone turned, obviously, to the federal government and to the state health um, uh, labs and, and authorities. And now there's a lot of others involved in this, and, and I think that what can be done is to bring them around the table. And perhaps when there's, a, uh, there's the beginning of an outbreak is to bring them all in, and maybe this is done, but to bring them all in and sit down and say, okay, what's everyone's role here? And we've seen this in whether it's an infectious disease outbreak, or we've seen this with uh, disasters, natural disasters. I remember with Haiti when a lot of, and I was down there, you know, uh, after that, you know, not right after, but uh, months after. And even then, there were a lot of people involved, and I think that's one of the challenges that we have. Well, I thank you. I, I won't belabor this, but I, I think we could carry on this conversation for some time. One of my frustrations is, 
in recent, uh, with some of our recent experiences, we've actually had public officials who have not been accurate and who have in some ways even exacerbated the situation with rhetorical claims and with decisions and actions that I think made the problem even worse. So the more I think we can inoculate against that with this coordinated effort uh, anticipating that these circumstances are going to arise and ensuring that these people act and speak responsibly, I think could go a long way to start to address some of the challenges we face. You know, I remember, Senator, when, when we had the anthrax crisis and sitting in your office and, and the discussions and around the table, and it wasn't sort of like, okay, you know, someone's sending an email or a text. It was like, okay, how do we address this problem now? And, and let's figure this out. Uh, and, and that's what the approach was. Now I think things have moved much quicker than, than 17 years ago. Exactly. Thank you. Uh, thank you. It was a really important exchange. Secretary Shalala, thanks for being thank here. Thank you very much, Howard. It's nice to see you. Um, I was interested that you didn't mention tuberculosis, and you've seen a bit of a, a spike in uh, New York, and it is an infectious disease that can spread rapidly. Um, New York dealt with it in 92, and um, in a classic uh, public health case. Um, could you talk a little about TB, how concerned uh, you are about it? We are. The, the specifics and the data, as a matter of fact, uh, I was looking some of this up and I said, I don't think I'm going to have the time to get this into the slides. Uh, but I was looking up because we do, we have seen an increase in tuberculosis cases. Uh, and, uh, and we've also um, do have the case, some of those uh, um, scenarios that which we had uh, 15, 20 years ago. Um, we we are trying to do, uh, we're trying to work on increasing education about this, um, about this issue. Uh, it is um, a challenge for us. It goes back to sort of people coming into the country and how are we monitoring uh, and checking for this and to be sure uh, um, people are, are, are safe. And, and, um, and I recognize that this is, uh, this is one of the other issues. So I, I don't have a specific answer for you, but I will look into what we're doing. But I do know New York City has been uh, seen an uh, uptick in this, and there was an incredible effort made at one point to really bring this down uh, when uh, um, uh, Commissioner Hamburg was there and, and Commissioner Frieden as well. Uh, thank, uh, thanks, uh, Donna. Uh, finally, uh, Ken Weinstein, um, extensive uh, background in law enforcement and was a Homeland Security Advisor uh, in the White House. Thank you, and thank you for your presentation. It was, it was excellent. Um, I wanted to uh, focus on one of our recommendations in our uh, national blueprint for biodefense, which yes, I, I assume you have in your nightstand at home, um, <laughs> a bestseller. Uh, the, um, the very first recommendation is about coordination at the federal level. And just looking at your background is a significant experience at the state level, federal level, WHO. I can't think of anybody better to ask about um, that recommendation. Have you seen just over your years, or in particular in the aftermath of the Ebola outbreak and another crises, uh, where um, there is a need for greater coordination? And to the extent that you have looked at our recommendation that there be an official in the White House, we recommend the Vice President, and there there be a council that's that would not only in the aftermath of crises, but sort of. Um, between crises, be thinking about these issues, planning for these issues, and working with state and locals and, and federal and, and overseas partners on these issues? I think there, there needs to be a coordination. We've had, uh, at times in the, in the White House, we've had uh, leadership uh, on, on the issues of, of um, 
uh, health security and then it dwindles off and then it comes back and then it dwindles off. And, and uh, I think that what happens is that uh, we uh, get a little desensitized and, and we don't realize that uh, this is right around the corner again. It doesn't have to be you know, a terrorist attack. It could be what we've been speaking about, just a, a biological uh, event, which is a, a natural event. I think coordination, uh, better coordination is always uh, helpful. I think that uh, we, we recognize that. And every time we've, I've dealt with one of these uh, outbreaks, uh, uh, we sit down and, and we work hard to make sure we have a best coordination uh, both on a, a local level, but also across uh, agencies. I find that, uh, you know, in my experience with both Zika and Ebola, coordination with the CDC has been has been great, uh, and also with the uh, calls to NIAID specifically on on, on issues. Um, the challenges as you get further away from you know the U.S. and dealing with WHO is a little bit different. Uh, you know, there's a different pace uh, a little bit overseas, at least in my experience, uh, and. Um, I think uh, it's our job to obviously um, do everything we can to improve the coordination. And I work hard to do that on a regular basis, both uh, with the, our federal partners, but also our regional partners, our neighboring states. Uh, let me uh, give you a chance for a, a, a final summary statement by asking you why your last slide said, oi. <laughs> so <laughs> I think it's because what I have experienced is that some of these um, outbreaks and problems really are incredibly time-consuming. And what I have found is that um, once we start down the process of dealing with whether it was Zika or Ebola, literally it took uh, so much time and it takes time from everybody else. And there's so many other things that they also need to do, whether it's at the federal level, state level, city level. Uh, and uh, we get so consumed by it, and it's just, oh, how are we going to get all of these things done at the same at the same time? Uh, and uh, my worry, also the other oy, is that I just feel something is brewing. You know, there'll be. So, uh, yeah. When I walked into this job, I didn't think I was going to have any Ebola issue. I didn't think about Zika. Uh, and I do remember the first Zika information. It was in the Wall Street Journal. There was a little article. It was in the end of December, uh, and it mentioned about what's happening in Brazil. And I, I you know ran up the flagpole and said, you know, this is something that may be, you know, headed our way. And, and, and we sat down, this was in December of 2015, and I just said to the team, let's come up with a plan. Let's start thinking about uh, of what we need to do. And the, and the government obviously jumped on it and said, let's get a six-point plan. Let's do this uh, quickly. Thank you very much for your time, for what you contributed. Uh, we welcome any additional comments you have, and uh, we'll take the liberty of asking you some more questions as time goes on. Thank you very much. Have, it's a pleasure have a good to be day. Honor. Okay, Thanks. Thank you. Okay, next panel on global security is Dr. James Lawler and Dr. Kenneth Luongo. Um, I'm tempted to share with you an old joke, Dr. Zucker, that uh, about. It's Oi Vey. Oi It's a little more right. Uh, Dr. Lawler, uh, commander of the U.S. Navy, retired. Uh, a lot of wonderful experience, Dr. Luongo, President and Founder of the Partnership for Global Security. Uh, we're uh, delighted to have you uh, both here, and um, we'll uh, call on you now in whatever order you choose. I think uh, uh, Dr. Lola's name is first on my list, but it's really up to you uh, to make an opening statement, and then we'll be happy to ask you some questions. I think I've been volunteered to go first. Okay, Doctor. 
So uh, good morning. Thank you very much uh, for the opportunity to speak in front of the panel. Uh, this is certainly an honor uh, to be able to speak with you and to share my opinions. Uh, those who know me know that I have uh, many of these opinions uh, and many which are strongly held. And they're probably wondering what you were thinking, asking me to speak in front of you. But hopefully uh, you'll find my uh, discussion uh, informative and helpful, if not uh, provocative. So uh, one of the um, virtues I, I hope that I bring to the table is uh, as someone who's had multiple different perspectives in the biodefense and health security community over the course of my career uh, as a physician, as a responder in high consequence infection outbreaks internationally, as a, as a researcher, a laboratorian, uh, and uh, a military officer and as a White House policy staffer. Uh, and I think in these roles, I've had the opportunity to um, feel the proverbial elephant, as it said, uh, from uh, a number of different angles and points of view. And uh, from that, um, hopefully have somewhat of a, a unique idea of what that elephant looks like. And I think that to continue on that metaphor, that, that elephant in the room is, um, is the fact that we are woefully unprepared uh, for these uh, biological threats, these transnational threats, and that as we continue to face a growing spectrum of these threats, both uh, naturally emerging and potentially deliberate, uh, we're also living in a world that becomes uh, increasingly interdependent uh, and brittle, uh, and I think that the uh, the West African Ebola outbreak was an excellent example of that, where mm -hmm. events that occur halfway around the world uh, now have profound and uh, very rapid effects uh, in the United States uh, and in other countries. Mm -hmm. So because I usually can't remember more than three things at a time, I've tried to focus on uh, three areas that I think are uh, problems that our uh, national enterprise uh, has to grapple with uh, to be able to uh, move forward in better preparing our country. And then three areas that uh, offer opportunities for, for solutions. So the first of these problems that I'd like to discuss is our, our lack of threat awareness and our poor situational awareness as it comes to these biological threats. Uh, I, I think it's evident from uh, Governor Ridge's description of intelligence assessments of uh, state-sponsored programs that uh, we often see a bouncing ball of these assessments in terms of um, one year is uh, one country is a threat, another year is another country. And I, I think this reflects the fact that our uh, intelligence community has, uh, has yet to be able to uh, figure out how to address the biological problem appropriately. I don't think that the IC has uh, sufficient, sufficient staffing of uh, personnel who fully understand uh, the sphere of biological threats. Um, I don't think that the intelligence community has appropriately resourced its efforts against these threats um, and has not executed uh, sufficient um, human intelligence and other intelligence activities to be able to have a really strong comprehension of what the threat space is for, uh, for deliberate threats, both from state actors and uh, non-state terrorist actors. Uh, more concerning to me uh, is actually our lack of situa situational awareness in day-to-day -day health activities in populations, both domestically and internationally, as it 
pertains to potentially uh, emerging deliberate threats, but also naturally occurring threats. So, you on, on this one, to know when people are beginning to get sick? It, absolutely. Yeah. Yes, sir. So um, last week I was actually in Nigeria uh, training hospitals to uh, use proper infection prevention and control procedures to deal with the ongoing loss of fever outbreak that's occurring in Nigeria. So this has been an especially bad year for loss of fever, which is a viral hemorrhagic fever similar to Ebola, but there's an estimated 500,000 cases of loss of fever in West Africa every year. It's a constant public health problem, but, but uh, especially bad this year in Nigeria. These hospitals were very close to ground zero where most of the cases of Lhasa have been documented. Uh, nevertheless, these hospitals had never sent uh, a patient sample for testing for loss of fever. Uh, because Nigeria relies on a centralized referral service for testing. As a matter of fact, the diagnostic capabilities of these hospitals was woefully insufficient. They had a few uh, rapid tests for malaria, hepatitis, HIV, uh, and a microscope to be able to diagnose some parasitic infections, including malaria, but really no culture capability, no capability to diagnose any viral pathogens. And this is not unique to these hospitals. This is true across almost all of the hospitals that I work in in the developing world. Um, the, the fact of the matter is, is that we have very little idea of what's making people sick in most of these areas of the world. And we have uh, public health surveillance systems that have been set up to try and gather these data. But at the end of the day, if, if you're not getting information from the bedside, uh, those collection systems don't necessarily give you much value. So we are in the situation similar to the old adage of a, a drunk looking for his keys under the, the street lamp. Um, we only have a few street lamps uh, that are uh, illuminated in these areas of the world. And uh, we are uh, relatively blind otherwise in terms of what's going on day to day in these populations. I don't think that we're always necessarily uh, much better at disease surveillance here in the United States either. Certainly uh, on a hospital basis, we have much more robust diagnostic capability, but uh, there's still significant problems in connecting the, the clinical world with the public health world. Um, as a practicing physician, oftentimes it's very difficult for me to understand what other diseases are being seen in my hospital at that time. Uh, not even what's happening across the city or what's happening across the state. Uh, and to be able to understand those events in real time, I think, is critical to really being able to defend ourselves against uh, what are rapidly uh, emerging events. Um, the second problem that I see in our national enterprise, uh, to be honest, is, is ourselves. It's, uh, it's, it's the government. Uh, structure that has been established um, to, to deal with these threats. So in my time in the government, I can honestly say that I met some of the most intelligent and dedicated people working in this space that I've ever worked with. Um, I will never doubt uh, the people that we have uh, in various agencies trying to deal with this problem, but they are stranded in a bureaucracy uh, that is um, uh, large, sprawling, and not necessarily organized in a way that uh, gets them moving in a coordinated direction. Uh, they're hamstrung by a variety of different uh, rules and regulations that prevent them from moving quickly. Uh, and as a result, um, our, our programs are, are often moving at a pace that uh, fluctuates between excruciatingly slow and moribund. Um, for, uh, for a fun exercise, I, I challenge anybody uh, at some point, if you're done with a Sunday crossword puzzle, to try and diagram 
the U.S. government civilian and military uh, biodefense and health security enterprise, trying to find where lines of responsibility, authority, and funding uh, converge. Uh, it is a, a massively complex system, uh, which as a result, uh, again, does not move quickly and is unable to be facile enough to deal with these uh, rapidly emerging threats. Uh, I, I'm still witnessing um, uh, repercussions and, um, uh, and, and new initiatives coming out of policy discussions that I was part of 10 years ago. Uh, that are now just coming to fruition, uh, or issues have not been resolved that were uh, that were decided upon 10 years ago. For instance, uh, DOD had put out a memo uh, over 10 years ago saying that naturally emerging and deliberate threats in the chem biodefense program really shouldn't be uh, separated. We should be dealing with those together, and funding should be able to go between both of those. But we still run into problems with uh, cooperative threat reduction programs and with the chem biodefense program, uh, where um, program managers say, well, we can't do work on that agent because we only do select agents. That's that's what our task is. Um, so the, the fact of the matter is, is that biology moves quickly. Um, a single point mutation in uh, in a genome or another stochastic event and all of a sudden you have a virus that's made a species jump into humans and you have a totally new uh, emerging disease threat. Influenza uh, has a doubling time of roughly two days. So uh, you're having exponential growth of an influenza epidemic uh, over very short periods of time. Uh, and these events are happening before we can even get our pants on in, in response. Um, we're never going to get ahead of the threat if we're continuing to operate on government time. My third problem um, that I think is, uh, is pervasive often is the fact that we tend to look at these problems um, backwards uh, from a lens looking in reverse rather than looking forward. I think this is true in naturally emerging threats. Uh, we are often um, positioning ourselves and, uh, and the enterprise to deal with the last threat so uh, dealing with the Ebola epidemic or uh, looking at how we counter uh, influenza. Uh, all important, but it is likely that the next emerging threat is going to be something new and un unanticipated. I think this problem is even more pronounced in, uh, in the traditional biodefense community and deliberate threats. We still have a static list of threats that has been relatively unchanged for the last 30 years that dictates our requirements and priorities for countermeasure development. Um, we base a lot of our assessments on threat, not only on um, former Soviet programs from the Cold War, but even our own offensive biological weapons program that we shut down in 1969. Um, we, we seem to assume that our adversaries have not picked up a scientific journal since 1980. Um, in the meantime, our, uh, our threat space has grown tremendously in the realm of uh, genetic engineering and synthetic biology. So my daughter is a high school senior. In her biology class, they were genetically engineering E. coli uh, to make different colors grown under uh, different conditions. This is something that uh, 15 to 20 years ago would only be done in the most sophisticated academic research laboratories in the world. Uh, now these technologies are widely available for kids to play with. It's great. It's, it's wonderful in terms of uh, the, the potential that's being unleashed for good but there's also significant potential for malevolent use. Where are we going to be in 20 years from now? What's going to be widely available? 
many of you, I, I'm sure all of you are aware of the recent development of uh, horsepox virus being synthesized uh, in a laboratory, de novo. Uh, we have gene editing tools now that are able to literally rewrite the book of life. Uh, these are the threats that we're looking at. We're still pushing a wet noodle of a plague vaccine that we've been trying to develop for 20 years. Um, we are not at a level where we're dealing with the threats of the future, uh, and we need to stop looking backward. So I, I will stop my depressing rant now and, and move to the three things that I think are opportunities where we, we can move forward and we can improve. And, and the first is to, to simplify our organization, so how the government is positioned uh, to, um, to deal with these threats. So uh, certainly there are many, uh, many, many state and local jurisdictions that have capability to, uh, to manage uh, these types of threats, but from a, a transnational level, we've, we've ceded most of that responsibility to the government, um, per, perhaps without a, a full policy discussion of, of whether that was the, the right solution. But I think certainly we can, we can streamline and uh, make much more efficient uh, the government organization that deals with the biodefense enterprise uh, to make lines of uh, authority, responsibility, uh, and, and funding um, align with each other so that there are people who are truly accountable for progress. Um, and, and that is, I think, a, a very important uh, step that we can take. The second thing is that I think we need to look at how we can be creative in moving some of these functions outside of the traditional government space. I think we're in a situation analogous to many industries who, uh, faced with these types of daunting problems, create a separate entity. They create a skunk works uh, to really uh, look at how they can be innovative, innovative and not harnessed to the legacy of, uh, of the bureaucracy that's built up over years and decades. Uh, and I think that there's also an opportunity to move some of these functions outside of government uh, so that it can be unrestrained, unconstrained by many of the, uh, the, the barriers and the, um, you know, the, the weights that uh, harness uh, our government agencies and don't allow them to, to move quickly. The, the second thing I think that we need to increase our focus on uh, is in uh, patient care. Uh, I, I was happy that Dr. Zucker specifically talked about patient management uh, for quite a bit of time, and I think it's important to remember that uh, our first line of defense and our last line of defense is often the bedside. Uh, it's, it's actually what's happening with, uh, with patients uh, presenting to healthcare facilities or, uh, or people in general uh, individually. So I, I think that um, we have a lot of these programs that have uh, environmental sensing systems and, and other more sophisticated um, tools trying to uh, predict events. But, but ultimately, I think the reality is that uh, we're still going to detect most events because uh, somebody develops symptoms, somebody gets sick, uh, or a group of people gets sick. And that's going to be our sentinel event that really lets us know that something's going on. Um, if we focus more on developing tools to recognize those events early uh, and to be able to manage those patients effectively, I, I think we'll be much further ahead of the game. And that doesn't necessarily mean that we need to continue investing only in you know, the magic bullets of medical countermeasures, so specific vaccines or therapeutics that are uh, targeted at specific agents. Uh, as I mentioned, I don't think we can predict necessarily what the next threat agent is going to be. And so I think we need to look at more uh, innovative solutions uh, at, at how we can address some of these uh, patient management issues uh, beyond just uh, specific targeted countermeasures. And that, that brings me to my last area of focus, uh, which is innovation. I think that innovation is going to be the key 
to moving us ahead and getting us to a point where we're much more prepared for these threats. Uh, as I mentioned, biology is by nature a nonlinear and exponential uh, realm. And we need to think beyond kind of the linear approach that we've been using now. We're, we're not going to be able to scale our way out of this problem. We're not going to be able to just do things bigger and faster uh, and expect that we're going to be able to get ahead of the threat. I really think we need to look at innovating and doing things uh, very differently. Uh, this means um, looking at new technologies, uh, but it also means looking at new systems and new approaches. How do we think about the problem differently? Uh, for instance, in the, the patient management sphere, as I said, uh, rather than looking at um, diagnostics that detect specific agents or therapeutics that treat specific agents, we should be thinking more about pathogen agnostic approaches. How, how can we exploit host immune response and other, uh, and other indicators to be able to quickly recognize disease, and how can we manipulate those to be able to manage threats that we haven't even necessarily uh, specifically prepared for, but we at least understand the biology well enough to be able to uh, manipulate host response and manage patients more effectively. Uh, I think the other opportunity we have for innovation is in, uh, is in the revolution of information science and big data and artificial intelligence. Uh, we have now um, remarkable abilities to, uh, to, to manage and analyze uh, large-scale data that we don't take advantage of in this space. Uh, we have, um, you know, large electronic medical record systems now across the country that are um, treasure troves of, of data, uh, both for research purposes and in real time to understand what's happening uh, in the health of the community at any given time. Um, but we have yet to fully take advantage of those to be able to uh, figure out how we incorporate that into our uh, defenses. So uh, in conclusion, um, if you are the, the type of person who lies awake at night uh, thinking about problems, I think this is probably one of the problems that, uh, that you should be thinking about. Um, but I think that we have the opportunity to move forward. Uh, I think the time for bold action was probably 10 years ago, but, but now is uh, as good as we're going to get. So uh, if we move forward now, I think we can make significant progress. But I really feel that we need to take the reins off the enterprise uh, and focus on, uh, on innovation to be able to uh, catch up with uh, the threat. Thank you very Thanks, much. Thanks, Doctor. I look forward to questions. <clears throat> Dr. Luongo, welcome. Thank you. Uh, thank you for the invitation to uh, address the panel today. Um, <clears throat> when I picked up your uh, 2015 report off my nightstand, where it <laughs> where it's resided for the last three years, I was um, I, I found myself in complete agreement with the first sentence of the preface to that report, which said, "The United States is underprepared for biological threats." And I think, despite all the excellent recommendations that were made in that first report, as you just heard, the United States remains woefully underprepared for uh, biological um, attack or uh, the new intensity level which is occurring, I think, in the biological field. So I'm going to focus my remarks on four key issues, infectious disease and pandemics, emerging technologies, international threat reduction, and international institutions. Infectious disease and pandemics are clearly the most immediate danger we face from biological threats, yet the challenge is treated primarily as a medical issue, not as a global security issue. And within the medical community, it's not at all clear that we're ready to deal with the effectively with the consequences of a severe infectious disease outbreak or pandemic. I just 
give a few examples. Earlier this year, we saw uh, some hospitals were completely overwhelmed with severe flu uh, and were stretched to their limits. So in Rhode Island, for example, hospitals diverted ambulances because they were flooded with patients. And in San Diego, one hospital erected tents outside the emergency room to manage the influx of flu patients. And this is an infectious disease that we prepare for every single year. So what does this anecdotal evidence tell us about our preparedness to effectively manage a bout of birds, flu, or swine flu, or emerging pathogens for which there are few or no medical countermeasures at the moment, for which the WHO, WHO, uh, lists Ebola, MERS, SARS, and, and other major diseases. I think there's several contributing factors to this situation. One is the increasing urbanization of the global population, not just in the United States, but around the world, uh, and the potential um, stresses that an outbreak, a major outbreak, would place on urban hospitals, some of which are not as well prepared as, uh, as we are, obviously, in the United States. Another is a decline in antiviral and antibiotic research and development. The United States launched a national action plan for combating antibiotic-resistant bacteria uh, in 2015, and this included the creation of a biopharmacal incubator, uh, which is a good idea, to promote innovation and increase the number of antibiotics for, um, in the drug development pipeline. But the timeline has been hazy, I think, as James just pointed out. You know, this is, this is something that we should have dealt with 10 years ago. This uh, uh, biopharmaceutical incubator, I think, has a timeline somewhere around 2020, and like most government, things probably will slip. Uh, but in the meantime, no new class of antibiotics has been developed since 1987. Antibiotic-resistant diseases are growing, and it's estimated that the global toll at present is several hundred thousand people annually. That could reach into the millions by 2050. And while this is primarily an issue in a developing world, um, it certainly could spread into the developed world. Third, I think there needs to be better and more focused attention on the modeling of the potential spread of disease. This issue of big data and um, how we use advanced computing, I think, is, is important. Some of this is being contemplated inside the government, but it's not very effective at the moment or comprehensive. And finally, today, uh, about 75% of all new emerging and re-emerging diseases are zoonotic in origin. They come from animals. So in our highly connected world, infectious diseases can spread quickly and far in a short period of time. I think SARS and H5N1 avian influenza and H1N1 uh, influenza pandemic are examples of how quickly things can change and spread and create serious challenges in places, as Dr. Zucker said, where you may not be expecting them, but you should be. Um, compounding the infectious disease challenge is the rapid advances in technology. Advances in biotechnology, nanotechnology, and related disciplines pose a significant dilemma. Uh, the promise is of better health care and uh, human health, but they can also be misused for hostile purposes. The field of synthetic biology in particular offers a number of, of challenges. It combines chemical synthesis of DNA with genomics to enable the rapid manufacture of DNA sequences or the assembly into completely new unknown genomes. From a risk perspective, the ability exists to create new biological systems and organisms that can be used for malicious purposes. 
much of this field, in the, this is an interesting phenomenon, I think, that exists in, in a lot of these dual-use areas. Much in, the, in the democratic world, uh, much of this advanced technology exists in the private sector. In the authoritarian world, it is controlled by the government. But in neither case is there very much transparency, either for commercial reasons or for secrecy reasons. So this raises questions about what is going on in the laboratory and how governments with control over the technology um, are managing it and for what ends. My major biotech countries, including the US and those in the European Union, have national frameworks and legal uh, requirements governing biosafety and biosecurity. Uh, but the governance activities of other major biotech countries, like China and Russia, are much more opaque. There are also a few global rules governing synthetic biology activities. The Biological Weapons Convention obviously bans biological weapons. Um, the Australia Group is an informal association that formed a synthetic biology advisory board in 2008. There's a synthetic biology code of conduct that outlines best practices. Uh, and that was driven in particular by concerns about the use of synthetic biology to create bioweapons and bioterrorism. Uh, but the adherence is voluntary. Uh, and uh, while it has some real value in terms of, of um, looking at databases against customer orders and then also making sure that customer orders are, are legitimate, it does not have the force of law. It's a purely voluntary. Uh, and it's not it's not um, universalized as well. Uh, while the governance process seeks to catch up with the rapid trajectory of biotechnology, the industry is undergoing additional changes. And I think this is a point that James made, which is that we're really behind the curve. So um, biotech is being significantly impacted by advances in data processing, artificial intelligence, and by nanotechnology. In the United States, the DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, is looking at how synthetic biology can lead to advanced nanotechnology through a program called Living Foundries. The goal is to standardize and streamline the genetic engineering process so that it can more easily and inexpensively provide new materials, capabilities, and fuels um, and medicines that are built in a Lego-like fashion. Um, creating these biological mini-machines. So while this may benefit the uh, needs of the U.S. military, uh, it can also be replicated by other governments um, that may not have the same intentions that we have. In my view, as long as biosecurity regulation and oversight remains mostly national, primarily national, and globally uneven, the world will face greater bio-vulnerability. And as life science continues to advance, more transparency and oversight will become more important. One of the ways the United States and its allies have attempted to increase transparency uh, at um, locations and in research has been through its threat reduction efforts, um, primarily the Department of Defense and the Department of State. A lot of these programs grew out of the old Nunn-Luger uh, program, which were focused on Russia and the former Soviet states, but now we have no access in in Russia, and, and they were looking at other opportunities, in particular DOD, I think, is working in, in Africa. Um, the, the Department of Defense's Cooperative Biological Engagement Program is, is really looking at, at global health threats and helping partner nations to improve biosecurity, biosafety, and also support the disease surveillance um, 
of traditional select agents and emerging pathogens. In 2014, I think this was also noted in your original report, the Global Health Security Agenda was launched with the goal of creating an international partnership that didn't just include governments, but also included non-governmental organizations and international organizations to strengthen the barrier against infectious disease and elevate global health and security as a global priority. The one important thing to note there is that while we, all of our European allies, our Asian allies, and China are members of this, Russia is not. And so what continues to happen in Russian biological research, I think, remains a serious question. I think all of these efforts are worthwhile, but I think they've also left a number of dark corners in the bio world unlit. So then it falls to the intelligence community to determine what activities are occurring in what countries and countries like Russia, Syria, and North Korea. And here, I just would anecdotally note about 10 years or so ago, a reporter for Science Magazine was let into North Korea on a science tour. And almost exclusively, the North Koreans wanted to show him their biological research facilities. So I thought it was fascinating since they are involved in chemical and nuclear and in bio. So we don't know exactly what is going on in all of these dark corners. Their bio laboratories are small. They're difficult to monitor remotely. And there's little of the large infrastructure equipment and signatures that are, for example, associated with nuclear programs. Historically, and in this regard, I really agree with what James had to say. Historically, the amount of intelligence community person power that has been devoted to this bio threat issue has been small. And while I haven't kept up with it in detail, it doesn't seem like it's grown significantly in the recent past. There are also challenges beyond states that are posed by non-state actors, including terrorists. State-supplied bio weapons to terrorists are one pathway of concern, but there's this growing DIY bio community, which I think has now spilled over apparently into the high schools. There's useful information, I think, from the National Science Advisory Board on Biosecurity regarding DIY bio, but that was back in 2011. In the meantime, terrorists have become more brutal and are better resourced than in the past. And Western intelligence agencies have stated that the Islamic State has been trying to develop biological weapons at its bases in Iraq and Syria. Syria itself is suspected of maintaining a biological weapons program. One thing I would say about Syria is that the trend is a little disturbing. So I think there's some uncertainty, as James said, one day the intelligence community says this country is a threat, the next year it says that country is a threat. I think it's pretty clear that there's some biological weapon program in Syria, but their unrestrained use of chemical weapons, their cooperation with North Korea on building a nuclear reactor, I think all of those things should give us a lot of pause about what's happening in the Middle East and particularly in that war-ravaged country. Overall, I think that given the myriad international challenges that the U.S. government has had to deal with on a daily basis and the lack of a bio attack on the United States has lowered the priority of 
bio threats in this country, and I think that that's a mistake. Finally, let me turn to international institutions. Um, as the panel has earlier reported, and I think we just heard, the U.S. government desperately needs to get better organized on addressing and preventing bio threats. Um, but the point that, uh, that the panel also made in their previous report was that global prevention and response capability will not come from who at the, national, at the um, international level. It will come from nations that agree to make it a priority. And then I thought there were some very, very sound recommendations about public-private partnerships and how to, to deal with this issue of not operating necessarily just on government time, uh, as James pointed out. Um, in my work in the bio area and in the nuclear area and other transnational security issues, I found that the challenges of, of the bio area are similar to those of other areas in terms of the transnational characteristics that identify it as a transnational um, challenge. There's a, a disconnect between governments and the private sector, which I think is something that needs to be remedied. There's an inability to coordinate effectively by breaking through silos as opposed to building silos higher, which is the national um, natural tendency in, in governments and particularly in Washington. And all of these issues are cross-cutting in the sense that they affect the economy, security, health, and human well-being. So my recommendation would be that as we work through each of these individual challenges, we all uh, we should also identify um, whether there's a model that could apply to all of these transnational challenges that could help us streamline our approaches to them. So thank you very much. Uh, thank you, <clears throat> Dr. Luongo. Um, both uh, excellent testimony. I note, and, and uh, our staff, I'm sure, has noted too, that both of you stressed uh, two things. One is uh, documented or described uh, and in our own way responded to in our reports, which is the lack of organization in biodefense generally in the U.S. government, probably a waste of money and probably a failure to spend enough in other uh, areas results from that. But, but specifically um, in terms of uh, preparedness uh, or detection that we're not spending enough in the intelligence community on the biological threat, and I think that's something that uh, we will we will take your warning on and, and focus on. Um, on the question of, of uh, surveillance and uh, more than that, really early warning, um, we uh, have looked at the BioWatch system, which was the domestic system uh, in, installed in different parts of the country to de uh, detect a biological attack early on and uh, found it really wanting, um, a really a waste of money at this point. Um, we also noted, um, spent less time on it, frankly, but uh, came to the conclusion that the Department of Defense has a better system for detecting uh, biological agents that might be used against our troops in the field. And I wanted to ask you both whether you had experience with this, particularly starting with Dr. Lawler, whether you, our, our judgments on both civilian and defense are correct? And if so, how can we move the civilian expertise more into the, uh, into, I'm sorry, the defense expertise in, more into the civilian sector? Yes, sir, uh, great questions. I, I think, first of all, for, um, for what it was, 
uh, a system that was rapidly thrown together in response to a perceived uh, emergency and um, you know using the technology of the day that the the biowatch system probably performed better than many people would have expected but but that being said clearly it's uh, it's based on very obsolete technology there are many issues in terms of its um, uh, its ability to rapidly detect um, events uh, and and also to drive decision making, which is uh, another issue in terms of how it connects with the public health community and how public health officials can make decisions off of that. Um, I, I don't know that I would necessarily characterize DOD's environmental detection uh, systems as better. Okay. I think uh, there are some uh, there are some attributes they have which are are superior in in potentially their ability to um, to characterize uh, events and uh, potentially sources more effectively. I, I think there are also um, uh, drawbacks in terms of sensitivity that uh, that they have uh, that that may not be as good. I, I think what's clearly the case is that uh, if we think that wide area release is still um, a significant threat on the civilian side, and certainly the consequences of such an attack would be so catastrophic that it's it's hard to imagine it wouldn't be worth investment, then I think we need to look at how we uh, how we take uh, what Biowatch was supposed to do. And, and uh, it was my understanding that Biowatch was never intended to be a permanent solution. It was, again, a makeshift temporary solution True. until we could develop something more uh, more appropriate. And I think that uh, the, the real question is how do we create something that is uh, much more up-to-date and much more nimble uh, than what we have with the uh, the current system? Can I follow on Please. Yeah, BioWatch has been around now for 15 years, and we've had this repeated refrain. Nobody thinks it was well-intentioned way back in 01 and 02 and 03, where 15 years later, I, we haven't had a witness or a soul that thinks it's even remotely effective given the nature of the threat. What do we do other than complaining about it? And I mean, everybody in the space, everybody in this space has concluded it is not what we need. Fifteen years worth of conclusions, but no single particular action. If you could wave the magic wand, what would you say? Or do we need a massive transnational pandemic to hit us that we didn't pick up? And by then we got thousands of people dead and we say, geez, that bio watch didn't work very well. What do you think? You've been inside of government and the military. If you're in the military, you get it done a lot quicker, wouldn't you? Uh, hopefully, uh, I, I think that I, I would. I, I would say two things. First of all, I I, uh, I, I emphasize, as I mentioned in my uh, in my prepared remarks, that ultimately I think that these environmental systems have are always going to have their limitations. You're never going to be able to pick up, uh, you know, all potential attacks and scenarios. So I think we need to invest much more in looking at population health and being able to detect events early on there. But I, I do think that environmental detection has a role, uh, certainly in the, in the military space, much more of a role than in the civilian space. Um, and I think what's really needed is a, uh, a focused program on bringing uh, new technology, uh, which uh, technology in this space has been emerging very rapidly. It, and, you know, things are possible today that were were not even conceivable 15 years ago. Uh, and so 
I think we have the ability to take some of that new technology and, and move it into a system that, that actually works and meets our needs. That One of the problems is there, there have been several attempts by the Department of Homeland Security to do that, and for a variety of reasons, they haven't gone anywhere. But, but one of them is, again, it, when, we, when we operate in the constraints of how the, the government often focuses in procuring new systems, we end up with systems that are automatically 10 years old and obsolete by the time we, we get them out. So, um, you know, we, we have... We're now in the era of, you know, the iPhone 10, and we're still using a flip phone. Um, um, I wanted to follow up on that because I was intrigued by, um, I think I heard your suggestion that we might take some of this outside of the government in into the private no. sector to make it more nimble. And obviously the problem with government bureaucracy is also a problem with congressional jurisdiction. I mean, the reason we have the fragmented system is because everybody's funded in a different way and it's hard to coordinate it. So let me pursue that. How are you thinking about that? Sure. Great. Uh, great question. And I think there's there's many different ways to approach that. I, I don't necessarily think that we need to completely punt to the private sector and not have um, strategic direction, uh, you know, from the federal government involved in that. But I think there are other approaches that potentially could work. So uh, historically in, uh, in the nuclear and national security spaces, uh, many of these, uh, you know, large technically complex problems were, uh, were given to uh, what eventually became national laboratories. So public-private partnerships with uh, universities and other entities to create uh, the national lab system we have now that was instrumental in, uh, in developing uh, many of our uh, strategic nuclear technologies and, and also in, um, in later uh, overcoming uh, our uh, decision to limit testing and, and to uh, essentially model uh, nuclear weapons testing and, and degradation completely in silico using computers. The, that type of approach is something I think that we could look at. The other thing is that um, other models of public-private partnership where we tried to spur innovation, I think Semitech is a, a, a great example. So that was a partnership between the U.S. government, but really mostly with the uh, semiconductor industry uh, looking at uh, foreign competition that was uh, really uh, beating the pants off the semiconductor industry for a while, and what they did is came together, uh, you know, as an industry and created a non-competitive space that was, uh, in part, sponsored by the government to create an opportunity for them to to grow together and to move U.S. semiconductor technology back to the forefront. Um, you know, those types of novel uh, approaches, I think, uh, could be looked at uh, in in this space as well. Tom. Thank you, Joe. I, you both have uh, very articulately talked about the extraordinary challenges we face in addressing the threat organizationally in the government. And I, I've always wondered to what degree that challenge is a definitional tension between health and security. Uh, if it's natural, it seems like it's always viewed on the health side. If it's intentional, it's viewed on the on the on the security side and therein lies the challenge as we look at threats generically on how we address this problem organizationally that definitional tension is one that that keeps us from resolving many of the needs we have for simplification and the complex bureaucracy because we're we're trying to cover all the bases but we have two very distinct kinds of threats that really aren't addressed in part because of the definitional tension. 
How would you address that? Well, I, I think it's beyond definitional. I think it's systemic. I mean, I think that you have in the health side, you have a, a, you have an entire education system that prepares people for, for health-related activities, and then you have a complete educational system that prepares people for national security um, challenges. And then there's this gap between the two. And we've looked at how, you know, we've brought a number of people together to cross over those two um, feels, but it's you really need, I think, something at the apex that of the U.S. government that tries to, I wouldn't say, you know, streamline them, um, but somehow better integrate at least at the fringes what those two communities are doing. So, for example, well, you know, there is a little bit of bio of uh, of um, uh, infectious disease surveillance going on by DOD. But most of that infectious disease surveillance is going on in the public, in the health sector. Why is DOD concerned about it? Because they're concerned about what it means from a national security standpoint. So I, I, I think that there's definitional, I think there's institutional, and then I think there's objective challenges. You know, what are our goals for each of these communities that are very difficult to, to overcome? Um, part of it is, I think, sensitizing the different communities to the needs and the operational structure of the other side. They operate in a completely different way. I'm not a doctor, but I have, have a, a, someone on our board, Dr. Harvey Rubin from the University of Pennsylvania, who is one of the, right, the governor, um, who is really, really knowledgeable about this crossover issue between security and, and the public health system and infectious disease. And uh, but there, you know, there, and I think James obviously just demonstrated his extreme knowledge about this. But it's a small group of people, and I think that that's that's what needs to grow. I think that community in the where the where the rubber is, where the two communities are being held back from each other. I think that is one place where this can begin to grow. Ken, do you have a question? <clears throat> Thank you. Just a quick one. Um, Thank you for your presentation. It's good to see you again. Um, question for you, Dr. Lawley. You said at some point that um, that maybe we've ceded too much authority from the private sector to government in this space. Just wanted to follow on and see what lurked beneath that comment. Well, only that, uh, and, and not only the private sector, but uh, but to uh, a large extent uh, the um, the, the nonprofit and, and philanthropic um, sector as well. So uh, I, I think there's an opportunity for for others to to partner with the federal government uh, to to take advantage of uh, where those entities can be uh, more creative and, and potentially more responsive. And, and so um, again, it wasn't necessarily to say that the, the federal government shouldn't have a central role. They they should, but I'm not sure that they should own every every part of the the national biodefense enterprise. Uh, Dr. Luongo, let, let me ask uh, this question. I, I take it um, from your uh, testimony that you were not surprised um, when General Dunford said, as uh, uh, Governor Rich quoted, that one of the reasons we attacked that uh, hit with missiles at Scientific Research Center in Syria was that we uh, concluded that they were developing biological weapons there. And that I take it, therefore, that you, 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 it's reasonable to foresee the expansion of biological uh, weapons capacity worldwide. Am, am I right about that? 
Yeah, I, I, I think this is, you know, I think that James just gave a great example of, of high school students working on gene editing that right. wasn't available 15 years ago. So if that's happening in a United States high school, what's happening at a sophisticated level in, in countries that are competitors and enemies of the United States? So I, just for one example, um, leaving aside Syria for the moment, Russia has probably the largest biological weapons complex in the world during the Cold War. After the fall of the wall, almost all of those facilities were sold off. They're not controlled by the government or they're quasi-controlled by the government, but there's also private sector, whatever constitutes private sector in Russia these days, involvement in those facilities. And it's totally opaque. I mean, we once had a window into what was going on in there, and now we don't have a window into what's going well, on. You have no doubt that the Russians have an active biological weapons program. I have no doubt that the Russians have an active biological program that has weapons potential. I couldn't say, given yeah, the lack of access, it. that let, that it's actually a biological let, weapons program. Let me ask program. this final question, um, which is, look, looked at this way, it's surprising, at least to me, particularly when you think of the anthrax attacks that followed on 9-11, that we haven't had a significant biological terrorist attack on our, our nation state against uh, our country. And I'm interested in hearing your theory or uh, analysis about why we haven't and, and whether you think it's likely or, or we have to assume that there will be an attack sometime in I, the near or midterm future. Well, I, 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 let me start with with an anecdote from, from the nuclear world, because the, the kind of analogous thing is, if radiological terrorism is so easy because, you know, there are blood irradiators in private hospitals, people ask all the time, why hasn't radiological terrorism occurred? Right. So I go around the world and I ask people from different governments and say, why hasn't radiological terrorism occurred? And they say, we don't know. So, you know, I do think that there, you know, I think it's the same with bio. I think there's a threshold, a threshold issue that once crossed, I think, opens a real Pandora's box. And I think right. biological, an intentional biological attack, um, not a non-state actor, but a state um, intentional biological act, is a serious piece of business. And I think that that's a crossing of a threshold that we haven't seen yet. And I think there's some reticence um, to do that. The terrorist issue could just be that they haven't mastered yet the ability to make the pathogen right. robust enough. But I have no doubt, absolutely seriously, that this is um, a continuing and growing threat. And as technology, not just biology, but as technology in um, collaboration with all of these other technological advances move forward, I think we're, we're facing a more serious challenge and we're doing less about it. And that's a mismatch I frankly don't understand. Well said. Governor Ridge. Yeah, to, if I might, to, to follow <clears throat> up on that, Ken, you mentioned that there are very few global rules relative to synthetic biology and the panel and you and everybody in this space says, but that's synthetic biology is accelerating rapidly and to the extent that we don't know, but we presume those are our foes are very much involved in that as well. So there are a few global rules. Is there any reason to believe even if we had global rules and people signed the convention that anybody would live by the rules? 
Well, we would. Well, that's. A, that's <laughs> I mean, you know, this is it. the so, old arms control so, question. So if, you, yeah. if, if you think it's developing at a rapid pace in laboratories of our foes, you agree by and large that <clears throat> conventions will be signed and then ignored. Where do we focus our efforts in this country? Is it DOD? Is it DHS? Collaboration between the public and the private sector, accepting this now not as a medical issue, synthetic biology, but as a national defense issue. And is there enough research going on, both of you, in this space to build out defense mechanisms? I would start, frankly, with the intelligence community because I think that's some that's a, that's a community that I think is understaffed for this challenge, and that's where the information about what's going on in the dark corners is going to come from. And I wouldn't do it just necessarily. I know this is difficult to do, but I wouldn't do it necessarily just as a U.S. intelligence um, focus. I think it has to be done with allies and with friends and even with quasi friends. Um, to, to, to try and sensitize those communities to the challenge that's out there. The second thing I would say is we have tried through the Biological Weapon Convention um, review conferences to talk a little bit more about what's happening in these biological spaces. But don't expect, you know, as former members of Congress and, and high-level politicians, don't expect diplomats or people that deal with, you know, policy issues to be able to grapple with the details of the technology because there, there's a, it's a very difficult thing to do when you've got a lot of other things on your plate and you've got people in the review conferences that don't want to do what it is that you want to do. So I think we need to find, and I'm, I actually don't know off the top of my head, who the right community in the United States government is to, to, to have this regularized conversation, but I know that somebody needs to be having, um, be having it be, because doing it in the BWC review convention um, every five years is, it, I mean, that's Stone Age. You know, what happens in five years in bio is, is light years. Dr. Lawler, you want to add or have the last word? <laughs> sure, I, I will address the, that question as well. I, I think that um, I'm not sure it's possible to, uh, to externally constrain and uh, limit scientific progress in that way, and I, I'm not sure it's necessarily advisable. I, I think one one issue that uh, needs to be addressed is how the scientific community um, regulates itself uh, in that space. I, I think that that happened. Uh, certainly there's precedent for that in uh, in, in physics, uh, in the advent of, uh, you know, a, a atomic uh, weapons research. Uh, there's also precedent for that in, in biology in um, uh, early on, uh, looking at early days of, uh, of genetic engineering. So um, there's no simple answer for that, but I, but I think that that has to be one of the foundational principles. I think the other thing is, again, um, if we can't slow it down, if we can't constrain it, we're going to have to outpace it uh, with our defensive research. Uh, and that's something where I think we have not focused and we need to spend uh, a lot more effort. Well, thanks to both of you, <clears throat> for not only for your excellent testimony, which is really helpful to us, but for your ongoing work in this area. And I hope we'll continue uh, to stay in touch. We've reached that uh, great point in the agenda where it says, break to gather lunch. 
Asha or uh, Patty, do you want to tell people what they're supposed to do, or is it self-evident? <laughs> One of the issues that I think is important is to understand the fastest growing of the world right now in terms of human population is actually Sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, Kinshasa, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, is now over 14 million people, which almost half of them live in dire slums. Lagos, Nigeria, 13.2 million people, same situation. Nairobi, Kenya. Go down the list here and you'll see that we these are really powder kegs in a sense. And if we think about the recent Ebola situation in West Africa with the three capital cities of Monrovia, Freetown, and Conakry combined, they are 4.2 million people combined. They, if they were a gas can waiting for a match, Ebola match to hit them, a place like Kinshasa is a gas tanker waiting for an Ebola match to hit it. And so you can get a sense that basically we do have challenges that we're going to deal with, and world population has a lot to do with that. You see some pictures there should give you a sense of what uh, these are from uh, Kinshasa, give you a sense of what we're dealing with. Then also I had a slide that was actually a graphical slide that would have moved, showing the 93,000 commercial airline flights a day. Those yellow dots you see there would all have moved through the every hour by the hour, and it becomes one big yellow map. And you get a sense, not just how the people who are traveling on those planes every day, but what's in the belly of those planes and how they move. The next piece, just to give you an underlying uh, kind of condition we have to deal with. When the United States and the U USSR decided to eliminate smallpox from the world, it was clearly a very monumental decision. And it worked because there were the conditions of smallpox. We had vaccine. We could re easily recognize cases, et cetera, et cetera. But in retrospect, what was really critical, there were two world powers in the 1960s, the USSR and the USA. And when those two countries decided to do anything, every other country in the world was a domino that fell behind them. And when those two countries agreed, it was agreed to today. 
Well, today, if we look at what's happening in the world, I don't know who a world power is or how you define it or who follows who for what. We look no further than the number of polio eradicators in Pakistan and Afghanistan that have been assassinated in the last several years, over 180. Just recently, a mother and her teenage daughter were killed for delivering polio vaccine uh, by, by ISIL. So it's a whole different world. And what you see here is the fragile state index from the Food for a Fund for Peace. And in that map, you will see over 40 countries in the world are literally in fragile state status or completely uh, unknown who basically is in charge in a way that can get government policies done uh, effectively and safely. And so we have a new challenge today. We, we can't deliver public health the way we did 20 or 30 years or even 40 years ago. And now we have to understand that. So what is our public health response capability? Let me move to that. After the Ebola crisis of 2014-15, everyone rushed on board to be a Monday morning quarterback. And I don't say that in a disparaging way, but we all have a natural inclination to want to figure out what happened, how we fix it. Whether it was the World Health Organization itself looking at how it performed, the National Academy of Medicine in the United States brought together a group, issued a report. And even the groups at, uh, Hop or at uh, Harvard and the Linda School of Tropical Medicine put together a group. And everybody came up with the same conclusion. We are woefully unprepared. The same kind of conclusion we've been hearing over and over again. And I will just say, in many instances, these are some of the finest people at a place like the WHO who are basically hemmed in by the conditions such as no increase in dues for a decade, uh, for a lack of resources across the board, an authority situation where regional offices by the United States' own design when the World Health Organization was set up are in many cases stronger than the central Geneva office. But the bottom line is it's a broken system uh, that we have to fix, and we have only had marginal improvement in that. And I think one of the things that uh, I want to share with you in a most positive way is we've got to stop having all this happy talk. I have gone to too many hearings. I've gone to too many testimonies where you know, everybody puts their best foot forward. Now, you know, surely there's a lot of good work going on, and we should emphasize that point. But we have to illustrate the problems. We can't fix them. If we just cover them up, and I think, Senator Daschle, your earlier comments about that were right on the mark. You know, what is it that we need to do to fix the problem instead of just congratulating ourselves for what we've accomplished? To give you a sense of where we might go with this, uh, uh, looking at the, what I think is one of the biggest problems, I actually share with you the UN panel's health crisis assessment after the Ebola situation. And the panel chair from the United Republic of Tanzania wrote in that document, following its extensive consultations, the panel notes that the high risk of major health crises is widely underestimated that the world's preparedness and capacity to respond is woefully insufficient. Future epidemics could far exceed the scale and devastation of the West Africa Ebola outbreak. The panel was very concerned to learn that the emergence of a highly pathogenic influenza virus, which could rapidly result in millions of deaths and cause major social, economic, and political disruption, is not an unlikely scenario. This was not said by some public health people that might be accused of trying to feather their budget nests. This was said by an objective leader of the world who looked at this, and I think we have to take that seriously. Next, you'll see a map that I shared with you that actually shows the population of Aedes aegypti mosquitoes in the Americas in 1930s, 1970, and 2015. This is an important measure of where we are today in public health preparedness and capability. Aedes aegypti is a mosquito that came over in the first slave ships from Africa, not native to the Americas. But today, it's a very important vector for diseases like dengue, chikungunya, zika, and yellow fever. 
It's a mosquito that is basically a household mosquito. It won't fly across an open street or an open field. It loves to grow in containers of water, little water dish in dark areas. It resides during the day in the closets of your house. It loves to bite you from behind during the day when you don't even know it's doing it. It's not the swamp mosquito we see. It's not the kind of mosquito we think of with malaria. Why is this important? Because in the 1930s, you can see how widely distributed this was in the Americas. And at that time, the Pan American Health Organization and the Rockefeller Foundation decided, we're going to go gangbusters. We're going to go house by house, and we're going to eliminate this mosquito. Look where we were in the 1970s. We had almost accomplished that. And, you know, it's one of those things that when I went into the business in the 1970s, infectious disease epidemiology, I said, why are you going into this? This is horse and buggy days. You know, that you're just, we don't need horse and buggies anymore. Well, look where we're at in 2015. Not only is it much more widespread today, but it's actually in population levels that are anywhere from 100 to 1,000 times higher than recorded back in the 1930s. Now, what happened? Well, one of the first things is, is that once we accomplished what we had, we didn't finish the job, and we thought we were okay, and we ended. Public health is a never, ever ending investment need, and that's what's really important to understand. The next thing came, world conditions changed. Fortunately, there's enough people of age on this panel. You might remember, what was the famous line in The Graduate? What did they tell Benjamin to go into? Plastics. What happened was the world has become a plastic garbage dump. And with that, one little bottle cap like this is a very efficient way in throwing in a ditch to get water in it and to grow it. These are gypti mosquitoes. And so the plastic garbage of the world has suddenly made this a very fertile world for Aedes aegypti. Well, look where we're at there, and you can see the challenges we have today, and we talk about diseases like dengue, et cetera. The next slide is actually a cover shot of the New York Times story about what's happened in Venezuela. This is maybe the saddest story of all in public health. This is a trivia question, but what country in the world was the first country to eliminate malaria out of its populous regions? Venezuela. In the 1960s, Venezuela did it by its investment of money from, at that time, oil revenue coming in, its governance. Today, Venezuela has the highest level of malaria in the populous regions in the world. 400,000 new cases reported last year. What happened? Basically, again, infrastructure fell apart. Doctors, nurses, lawyers, and architects had no jobs. They went back out into the jungle regions and did illegal gold mining. With that, they picked up malaria, brought it back to the cities, and because of the fact that there are no treatments, drugs are very short supply, et cetera, this has now become, along with the mosquito residing in the urban areas, a, a horrible, horrible problem. The next slide is just a, a, a story about that, but actually today there's a story in the New York Times about this very issue, about just how bad Venezuela is. This is a stark reminder to us. It's not just what do we need to do to get better, it's what do we need to do to make sure we don't lose ground. And I worry desperately between these crises, we lose ground. You know, we'll have this momentary kind of excitement that, oh, we got to do something, and then it just goes out of the way. And that's why your panel is so important. You are, in a sense, the standard bearer for reminding us in this country, for that matter, the world, this risk doesn't go away, and it's only getting more complicated, and that's hard to hear. The next piece is my contribution to the art discussion today. For those that don't recognize this, this is the Battle of Waterloo. And I think we would be well to study events like this to understand why in public health we've got some challenges. This occurred in June 18th of 1815. As you know, at that time, Napoleon uh, was taking on with the French Empire, the United Kingdom, and Prussia. I, by the way, there's no reference to France today based on events here. This just is a story I use a lot. Um, Napoleon had a much larger force of experienced soldiers. 
they attack they decided because of that they could attack at leisure they waited on the weather till they had good weather they assumed superior numbers and skill would prevail and they had a poor understanding of the opponents especially the prussian troops based on past experience well based on all the reasons why they should have won they didn't win and in fact at that time the french army was routed napoleon was placed in exile where he died napoleon had a set of expectations of how things would happen and they didn't happen that way and what we do far too often today is we make the assumptions we're okay, we're all ready to go until the next crisis happens, and then we realize we get routed. And we've got to stop that cycle, and we're going to talk more about what that and why. Well, let me move to what is a pandemic and why does it matter? The words matter in public health more than just the fact that they're definitions. In a book that I published last year with my co-author Mark Olshaker, Deadliest Enemy, Our War Against Killer Germs, we actually tried to lay out a prioritization as to what do we really need to be most concerned about and why. And pandemics are worldwide epidemics. They occur around the world. Ebola was never a pandemic. Any of the diseases we talk about, even Zika, cannot be considered an a pandemic. But the two diseases that really today have the absolute potential to be a worldwide outbreak overnight, one is influenza. And we'll talk about that in a moment. The second, as you heard in the previous panels, antimicrobial resistance. It's not a single bug outbreak. It's a growing collection of serious challenges we have because the microbes are just doing what they're naturally doing. They're evolving at microbial time every 20 minutes or so. And as a result of that, we are basically going from a pre-antibiotic era that our grandparents and great-grandparents lived in to an antibiotic era, and we are about to be approaching a post-antibiotic era. And at least you think that uh, this may be hyperbole, uh, a very, very well-done report. I'd urge you to look at this, the AMR report done by uh, Sir Jim O'Neill, led by him in, great, in, in England, published uh, two years ago and supported by the Wellcome Trust, was by far the most exhaustive. Uh, look-see at antimicrobial resistance. And they concluded that by 2050, more people will be dying from antimicrobial resistant infections than dying from today's cancer and diabetes numbers. So it, we really have a challenge here. So I only point that out. It's not to take on any more here, but that is a pandemic problem. But if you look at this list here, let me just start with influenza and just briefly then make comments about a couple others that I think are key. Influenza, it's a disease that goes back to the literally almost prehistoric times. Well over 200 million years ago, influenza viruses took up residence in the guts of wild aquatic birds. Ironically, chickens didn't even come along for another 100 million years and then got involved with the whole thing. This is not a virus that in birds typically causes illness or at the time surely infected humans and caused a problem. However, over evolutionary time, it changed. And it turns out that these viruses, which are native to the guts of these wild birds, basically can genetically change enough so that they can infect other animal species. And in this case, we are one of them. How it does it most often is through what we call reassortment or mixing of genes. The influenza virus is a very promiscuous virus that will willingly share its genes with any other influenza virus that's in the same cell. One of the things that makes that happen are animals like pigs. Pigs actually have receptor sites for both the bird viruses and the human viruses. When they get together, they can create a brand new human virus. And this is where the term swine flu came up and why we're so concerned. You know about the great influenza uh, center. You mentioned it this morning, the 1918 epidemic. There are many people who think, well, that was a one-off. You know, never will happen again. Let me take you back. Hippocrates described influenza pandemics. If you go back to the 1600s, there were at least 10 major influenza pandemics, and even historically, even more than that. 
What that what is occurring there is when a new influenza virus gets out of the animal population, it gets into humans, and for the first time, humans can transmit it to other humans. And then that starts the whole cycle, and then it's no longer dependent on the animals. In 1918, as you correctly stated, Senator, there's an estimated anywhere from 50 to 100 million people died. Think of this. This virus did not get to the French battlefield, a European theater, until the very end of the war, and yet eight times as many U.S. soldiers died from influenza in Europe than died from a whole entire three years on the battlefield. So it was a very, very uh, uh, serious situation. Where did it start? We don't know. It may have been in the United States. But there's a graph here I want to point out for you that is uh, it's age distribution of deaths from influenza and pneumonia at Boston. What you'll see there on the bottom are the ages 0 to 9, 10 to 19, 20 to 29, 30 to 39, 40 to 49 and up. What you see is from uh, September 12th to September, or uh, 1912 to 16 for September, October, and November is the historic data for the city of Boston. At that time, on the left, you'll note deaths per 100. So in other words, per 1,000 population, there were 300 deaths as such um, from in young kids. That's about 0.3%. If you look, then it drops dramatically, and it's not until you get older. But look at that second bar. There is September through October of 1918, where now the numbers are thousands. 3% of kids died. Where it hit young adults, almost 6% of the young adults just died in those two months. To give you a sense, more children died from, swine, from this influenza outbreak in September, October, and November of 1918 than died for the next 25 years combined in this country. It gives you a sense of the impact this disease had. Now, can this happen again? Surely. The next slide is actually data that we generated at our center, which gives you a sense of previous pandemics and the most recent one. And this is the mean age of deaths. And what you'll see is if you've seen one pandemic, you've seen one pandemic. You don't know what it means for others. In 1918, the mean age of deaths was 27 years. Average life expectancy was 56 years. Then in 1957 and 68, two different flu viruses, H2N2 and H3N2 appeared. And look at those. Average age of deaths were 65 and 62 years, respectively, with life expectancies of 69 and 71. They almost mirrored life expectancy, meaning it really affected the older population. But look at 2009. While there were fewer deaths and it didn't have the same devastating impact that 1918 did, the average age of deaths in the 2009 cases was 40 years. Life expectancy was 79. When you actually adjust on life expectancy, the cases that died in 2009 were younger than the cases that died in 1918. So depending on which flu virus spins out and what it does, the next one could be a hell of a problem or it could be another you know, kind of one where it's seasonal flu and steroids. We don't know. But we can tell you with certainty that these are going to continue to happen, just like earthquakes, hurricanes, and tsunamis occur. The next slide actually is a cartoon that I had in a Excuse new journal medicine. Why, why are they going to continue to happen? Okay. It's an obvious question, but why are they why are they going to continue to happen? Actually, if you give me a couple more slides, I'll give you exactly right. that, okay? Good. Thank you. But thanks for that lead-in. Um, this slide just gives you a sense of, it's. this is called a, a cytokine storm. And flu viruses can kill you one of several ways. One is, is that basically, and what we often think of is, it damages your lungs sufficiently that you then did a secondary bacterial infection and you die from that. Well, you'd argue if I had antibiotics, I should be able to do well with that. A cytokine storm is basically an immune response that is out of control in the individual who has influenza and the virus causes that. 
We can't do much better today with cytokine storms than we did back in 1918. We surely have some better medicine. We have some machines that can help. But generally speaking, the outcome is very poor. So we're still very vulnerable to flu today in many ways as we were in 1918. Now, Senator, to answer your question directly, the next slide is an article that came out in February of 2015 from the World Health Organization saying, wake up world, something is happening with flu viruses in birds. Very different. Even though we didn't have virus uh, identification abilities till the early, mid, early to mid 1900s, what we had basically is a lot of records on animal and bird health. And so when large flocks died, even in the 1800s and 1700s, we knew about it. Today, what we're seeing is incredibly different. And what this document did is tried to get people to wake up. And if you go to the third page where it says uh, February 2015, since the start of 2014. Now remember, this is February of 2015, 13 months. Since the start of 2014, the Organization for Animal Health, or OIE, has been notified of 41 H5 and H7 outbreaks, a type of flu virus we're concerned about in birds that could go to humans. In birds involving seven different viruses in 20 countries in Africa, the Americas, Asia, Australia, Europe, and the Middle East, several novel viruses that have emerged and spread in wild birds or poultry only in the past two years. Let me fast forward to address your question. Imagine if I could restate this today and say since the start of 2014 and bring it current to 2018, which is a slightly longer time. I'd read it by saying since the start of 2014, the OIE has been notified of thousands of H5 and H7 outbreaks in birds involving at least 14 different viruses in 67 different countries. Something has happened literally in the last three years. And our group is very involved with influenza research and can tell you this is not an artifact of just better surveillance. So what's happening is in part, we believe, because of the growing number of poultry in the world, which is the primary poultry source. To give you an example, every month, 125 million chickens are growing in the peri-urban region of just Shanghai to feed Shanghai. From the time a chicken is hatched until it's on your plate is 35 days. So Every month, 125, 125 million new chickens are born. That's just one city. So what we've done is we've really altered the animal-human environment in such a way that we've greatly enhanced the opportunities for these viruses in the birds to spin out and get to humans. I liken it to the fact if you and I went to the casino and we had one throw an hour, what are our chances of winning? What if we had an electronic ability to throw 1,000 throws every second? Guess who probably is going to win first? What's happened is the birds are now throwing electronic casino throws. And we have to understand that this is going to be a challenge for us. And so, yes, why are we going to have more? Because we just are under much more pressure. Now, this next one is an article that uh, our group published in The Lancet in 2011, which was one of the least popular things I've ever done in my life. Um, it was an article that basically said, hold on, we have grossly overestimated how well our flu vaccines work not by necessarily deception or intent. We didn't understand what we didn't understand. It turned out flu vaccines really got their genesis in World War II. And our Department of War was the primary force behind that because everybody remembered 1918. And they thought, what would happen if this were to occur again? And so today's flu vaccines we have are really a byproduct of the Department of War work from World War II. And many of the original premises of how they might work, even the technology we use today, the same antigen that we use is there. Well, when we went in and looked at it, we found out, no, they don't work nearly as well, and these are the reasons why, and people didn't want to hear that because somehow we were putting down flu vaccine. It was actually quite to the contrary. 
what we are calling for is new and better flu vaccines. In the next page, you'll see this is a uh, article that's on the current CDC website, Seasonal Influenza Vaccine Effectiveness 2005-2017. And to CDC's credit, they have really tried to now lay out as clearly as possible just how well these vaccines are working. And on the next page, if you look to the second to the right column, it's what's called overall VE or vaccine effectiveness. So how, much, how many times does it work? And you'll see starting in 2004, let me just read down this list. These are by year, 10 percent, 21 percent, 52 percent, the next slide actually shows even our ability to produce the vaccine is limited by the current cap production capacity for largely growing it in chicken eggs. These are data that our center generated looking at the 2009 pandemic. What you see is the blue line is what we call influenza-like illness surveillance. And on the far right vertical bar, you see the percent of visitors coming to doctor's offices by month reporting influenza-like symptoms. And you can see that the second wave of the pandemic clearly peaked in early to mid-October. Look when the vaccine arrived, despite every effort to get it there as quickly as possible. Red light sirens all went off in April of 2009 to get it done. By the time that the wave had come down, we still only had about 45, or 45 million doses of vaccine into the American public, of which many of them went to kids who required two doses. So it wasn't even like we had that many people vaccinated. If you look at worldwide, we're lucky, and I say lucky, if we come up with the best guest estimate of less than 5% of the population of the world had access to flu vaccine by the end of the second wave. That's the capability. So we desperately need to change that. And it was the reason on January of this past year, Mark and I had another op-ed piece in the New York Times, we're not ready for the flu pandemic. And we did two things. We predicted, number one, that it was going to be a bad seasonal flu year, which it turned out to be. And number two, we said the vaccine wasn't going to work that well, which it didn't. I mean, I don't know, you have to be real smart anymore to predict some of these things. And I think the point being is, is it's time for us to take a step back and say, what do we really need to do? Why? Because we could have a 1918, and I'll let your minds begin to get around that and imagine what it would be like today if that were to happen. In 2012, our center, the next page, produced a report called The Compelling Need for Game-Changing Influenza Vaccines. We found out that, number one, public health was its own biggest enemy. We had so oversold vaccines, we had taken any private market incentive out of trying to get a new vaccine or a better vaccine, and we had basically made it a sense of, you know, just get your flu shot every year and we'll be okay. And in this report, however, we laid out a very clear pathway for how we could get new and better flu vaccines. And to put this into contrast, the next slide, which I don't know if any of you recognize that individual, that's Secretary Margaret Heckler, former Secretary of HHS, Secretary Shalala. Um, and she had a very infamous statement on April 23rd, 1984, in which she at that point uh, in a press conference said that we'd likely have an AIDS vaccine in three years. Well, I spent the next several years again in the doghouse because I was quoted frequently in the media saying, I did not believe we'd have an effective AIDS vaccine in my lifetime. And it was because to me, it was like beam me up Scotty technology, given how we know the virus infects people. I stand here today in 2018 and say, I don't think we'll have an effective AIDS vaccine in my lifetime. Now counter that with what I'm about to tell you. So it's not just that it's a happy talk. 
I actually honestly believe we have the technology and the growing information to come up with a very effective flu vaccine that might be given once every 10, 20, 30 years and protect against a variety of different strains. So why haven't we gotten there yet? Because, again, we've lacked the commitment in, deal in dealing with this. Recent editorials in a number of journals, Nature Medicine, et cetera, have all come up with uh, the idea that we need to do this. Even the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases has said that it has a strategy to universal flu vaccine. But the problem with this is nobody has really put the grand plan together yet, meaning NIAD, which is surely cutting-edge science for the world, covers just that very beginning part of a flu vaccine. This is going to have to take an entire from cradle to grave, private sector, how will they be involved, how we involve the world, how will we price it. It's going to take a lot of work to do that. And to give you some sense of that, today, if we look at HIV vaccine research, which I just told you about, we spent over a billion dollars a year and a half for the last eight years on HIV vaccine research. I wouldn't take a penny of it away. Last year, as a federal government, we spent less than $70 million on that. Now, along comes Senator Markey, who in part tied, because we had discussions with him, to our New York Times op-ed piece, proposes a new legislation in February for basically a billion dollars, 200 million a year for the next five years. And it was the first real move by the U.S. government to really make this a high priority. Well, in the next slide, you'll see finally on March 23rd, the president signed the bill, but it was basically for $100 million one time. Well, that's like buying five foot of rope for people who are all drawn in 30 feet out. It's a good start, but it's not going to do it. And what we have to understand, we have to finish this job, and it's going to take it. And that's where the next slide, and I promise this is my last uh, uh, outside uh, effort at other events. This is the Manhattan Project. People really, really misunderstand what happened in the Manhattan Project. All they think of was a bomb. And in fact, this is by far one of the finest examples of project management and prioritization of goals of any effort ever conducted by humans. You may agree or disagree with this outcome. It began modestly in 1939, but grew to employ more than 130,000 people and had an annual budget of $2 billion. Today, that would be $22 billion a year. The research and production took place at more than 30 sites across the U.S., U.K., and Canada. And how did it all get held together? Not by world-famous physicists, Nobel Prize laureates. It was held together by a major general, Leslie Groves, who was in the Manhattan District Office of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers and who, in pre-computer days, was an absolute master at project management. Everything was done on time. Everything was at the right place for the right people, whether it was the physicists or the construction people. And it was all about setting a goal and project management and providing the resources. Today, we need a Manhattan Project for flu vaccine. Short of that, I'm afraid I'll be back here five years from now having the same discussion with you. Well, we're getting there. We just bought five more feet of rope. We're now at 10 feet. Pretty soon we'll get out to 30. So I think this is, this is key. Let me just move quickly. Why does the 21st century matter? This next slide, actually, which I was very proud to share with you, I pulled off this morning. Every hour on the hour, all 63,000 fast sailing vessels in the world report their location and weather conditions. This was from this morning, where they're all at. See all those red dots on there? This is now the warehouse of the world. This is where all the goods that we count on every day are at. A fast freighter today from outside Be the port of Beijing to Long Beach is nine days. And it is in, in the uh, harbor for about 20 to 24 hours where it unloads, reloads, refuels, and it's gone again. 
So if anything were to affect this, I can guarantee you we'd have problems. There's the next, uh, next slide. I, I, this is a trivia question for each of you up here. How many washing machines do you think you can put on that ship? Huh. Anyone want to guess? Guess some really... Who'd, one million washing machines per, per journey. Wow. This is what we're counting on today for what moves things around Wait the world. I get home and ask my wife that question. <laughs> well, I'm happy to send you the actual slide if you'd like it, okay? And thank you. That's right. Well, that's going to get to be another point in a minute. <clears throat> so the whole point of this is we don't understand the complex interdependent infrastructures are likely to fail in a cascading fashion during a severe pandemic. Remember, a pandemic is affecting all people around the world about the same time. It would result in unprecedented employee absenteeism in all regions of the world. Global critical infrastructures are most vulnerable to cascading impacts of a pandemic, including public health, medical care delivery, food, transportation, pharmacies, cyber, manufacturing, and power. All of those are highly, highly vulnerable. Well, I show you here, next several slides are news scans from our website and other news sources, surprisingly, or at least surprised by, the fact that suddenly when we had a, a, a Hurricane Maria, Category 5 hurricane, wipe through the Puerto Rico, that we're suddenly going to have a shortage of IV bags for the world. I gave a talk four years before this. I still have the slides in which I said, you know, the next Category 5 through Puerto Rico is going to really make a mess for us with IV bags because 70% of the world's production is on that island. And anybody could have predicted this. And so why were we so surprised when it happened? And you'll see we still today are trying to recover because we don't have worldwide capacity to make IV bags and the medical. Further down, you'll see an article called China RX. It's a book cover, actually. I urge everyone on this committee to read this. It's recently published by Rosemary Gibson, who is at the Hastings Institute and an, an associate editor of the Journal of the American Medical Association. What this does is shares with you what's happened to our pharmaceutical industry today. Virtually almost all generic drugs are made in China. There is no surplus supply chain. There is nothing that basically makes it so we will not run out. We did a study several years ago and surveyed a group of world-famous PharmDs in all areas of medicine. We said, what are those life-saving drugs you have to every day or people die? Not cancer drugs, not most antibiotics, surely not lifestyle drugs. What's on the crash cart in the emergency room? We came up with 30 drug-drug categories. 29 of those drugs were made in China, all generic. No stockpiles, just-in-time delivery, major shortages. One, insulin, was actually made in Scandinavia, of which I'll come back to in a minute. To give you a sense of what I'm talking about, the next slide is a summary of emergency room visits in the United States. What you'll see here is there were 11.2 million emergency room visits last year, of which 1.8 million actually resulted in critical care admission. It gives you an idea just how sick these people are. Well, in the next pages, which I wish I could share the audience with you, with you is data from Boundtree. Boundtree is the pre-hospital supplier of supplies for all the United States. So if you're in ambulance services, et cetera, you buy almost everything you get from Boundary. This is a list, and note in the upper right-hand corner, April 19th. This comes out weekly. All these drugs are an absolute short supply are not available right now. We have crisis settings in many institutions around the country where we can't get needed drugs. And if you look at the dates for many of those, they're not going to be filled literally for months to years. And it goes to the list. 180 drugs here. Okay, And many of them are key things like something as simple as atropine. Then you even get into the next level, which is also from Boundtree, 
And you'll see that, in fact, we have the same phenomena here with the, all the pain medications. Look at morphine. Morphine right now in this country is in terrible short supply. And then you finally get down to the next level, which is the IV bags, which basically you'll see is what I've already talked about. This is the kind of world we live in today where anything that causes even a hiccup in places where we actually manufacture and receive critical goods is going to cause us. Now, what happened in West Africa was Ebola was not a problem in the sense of supply chains. We had a slight interruption of cocoa and a slight interruption of rubber. But if this were hit China, were hit other places of the world, we are completely beholden to them. If you look in our country today, next slide, about 2.7% of the population has some level of immunodeficiency, which are on any number of drugs for that reason. Next, you'll see how many people here in terms of diabetes. Right now, there are 14 million Americans that are taking insulin every day. Think, again, where they're going to get that if we have a major shutdown. And then finally, kidney dialysis. In 2014, there were 118,000 people in the U.S. that started treatment for basically long-term kidney disease. There were 662,000 who were living on chronic dialysis or with a kidney transplant. Now, today, do you know where your, chronic, where your dialysis distillate comes from? Not the United States. So you see how vulnerable we are. And all of these issues. So if a pandemic of influenza were to hit the United States today, some ways, the pandemic could just be the first of our worries. It's all the collateral damage that would occur, and that's going to happen around the world, and we are doing nothing. We are doing nothing to deal with that. We are more vulnerable today than we were five years ago, and we're more vulnerable five years ago than we were ten years ago. So one of the challenges is what are the indirect impacts? And this will affect our military. This will affect our world leaders. We have to deal with that. So what are the challenges for the future? Let me just wrap up. First of all, I want to emphasize what the previous panel said. I absolutely do believe that the dual-use research of concern and what's happening there is a major challenge. I was a charter member of the NSABB starting in 2005 to 2014, and I can only say the best we did was shed some light on the issue, but largely kick the can down the road. We don't really have a way, and I think Senator or Governor Ridge, you said it well, if the good guys are going to do it, what does a piece of paper mean? So how do you actually verify? How do you actually know what's going on? You're right on the mark. We look at the issue, there are clearly benefits of gain-of-function work. We have to understand that we can't just say go away, but how do we do that? Do we publish the results? And you can see the next paper is the one that came up, mentioned earlier, about the development uh, of a new horsepox virus, de novo. You know, some of us had talked about that several years ago. It was going to happen, and nobody wanted to believe it. Again, it was that bad news don't believe it. If you can make horsepox, you sure in hell can make smallpox. And today we have to know that who might want to make it? You know, it doesn't have to be a, 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 a state actor. It could be somebody who just has enough experience who also has a, some element of mental illness that could try it just to see. Are we prepared? Think of smallpox. We're very comfortable right now with the fact that we have enough smallpox vaccine in this country. And it's one of the legacies of the post 9-11, of which uh, Governor Ridge was a key party to this, that we now today have that. And I'm very, very proud to say we can. But what if this starts somewhere else in the world? Are we going to give our vaccine away to try to stop? It? Are we going to say, no, we're going to hold it? Because we don't want to possibly run out of doses in time for us. We have lots of challenges yet that we haven't really addressed. In terms of looking at 
what uh, we also need to consider for the future. Think of this, 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 and I'm talking about this in open public, but this was because it was well known inside the community. This past year, we had a major plague outbreak in Madagascar, the island thereof. This is caused, you know, by the classic bacteria that causes plague, and most often it's what we call a selvatic cycle. It starts in animals, people get exposed from fleas, etc., and they develop what's bubonic plague, where they get basically the infection in their lymph nodes, etc. Still a bad thing. But occasionally, you can develop pneumonic plague. It gets into your lungs. And when humans develop pneumonic plague, they are now capable, in many instances, of transmitting it via the air to someone else. But we had literally the largest outbreak of pneumonic plague in modern history on Madagascar this past year. And it was really a very difficult outbreak to bring under control. In a sense, thank God it was on an island, because it literally did mean it was more contained. But what was really challenging here amongst many of my colleagues the only way to really stop pneumonic plague is to treat the people who are infected or they die. If you treat them, they can't transmit to others. This bacteria was sensitive to the key antibiotics that we had to treat it with. But we can tell you that even a junior scientist in many labs could have engineered resistance in that bacteria overnight. And had that happened, we wouldn't have had any weapons to stop it beyond the basic kind of respiratory protection control. And now here we are in 2018, we're talking about pneumonic plague. That's what we wrote, read about in the 1800s. So this again reminds us of how vulnerable we are. Finally, let me just say, where are we going in the world of future vaccines? I was very involved with setting up and supporting a group called the Coalition Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, which you're familiar with, CEPI. This is the group that the Wellcome Trust and other countries have come. And they just announced basically an award of up to $56 million to advance DNA vaccines against Lassa fever and MERS, a very noble thing. But the effort is to get it to a 2A status, meaning of a whole licensure process to phase three phase licensure. And the next slide, what you see is the market dynamics for developing flu vaccines, but it's the same thing. The valley of death is that period between phase two into phase three in early commercialization where most vaccines or drugs fail. We don't have a system to take CEPI vaccines and move them to phase three and licensure in a business model. And the reason I point this out to you, because I've had a very rude awakening myself in the past year. Our center was charged by the WHO with leading the R&D roadmap blueprint for vaccines, therapeutics, and diagnostics for a number of major diseases. So we've been charged with the whole world bringing these together. It's been Ebola, Nipah, uh, Lassa fever, et cetera. And over and over and over again, what we keep hearing, it's not about the basic science. There's no business model. There is no business model. Why are we going to invest millions and millions and millions of dollars and maybe at the end of the rainbow have a pot of five or $10 million in revenue? We have to fix that because we can do all the upfront work we want, but if there's not something on the backside, you know, imagine if today we went out and wanted to buy aircraft carriers by saying basically, you know, we'll help you figure out the basic design, but after that you're on your own and good luck you're going to sell it to. And maybe we might buy them, maybe we won't. We wouldn't get aircraft carriers made. So we have to bring that kind of intense project management, goal setting, and prioritization to these. Finally, let me just say uh, there was an article in today's, uh, yesterday's paper on the U.S. stockpile. This is a great, great thing, and I think that I give the U.S. government great credit for how it's done this. But after what I just shared with you, 
just know that that stockpile is just a start. If people are dying because they can't get dialyzed, or people are dying because they can't get insulin, or people are dying because they can't get any other you know, life-saving drugs they need, that stockpile is not going to have much impact. So part of the challenge we have is how do we bring the entire pharmaceutical world to clear? And so let me just conclude by saying, as Sir Winston Churchill once said, it's no use saying we're doing our best. You've got to succeed in doing what is necessary. And I think we take such credit for doing our best. And it's not a bad thing, but know that it's not sufficient. And if we're really going to address this, and this is why we're so pleased that your panel is addressing these issues, because you may be right now one of the lone voices out there bringing a comprehensive and proactive agenda to the table. Thank you. Thank you, Doctor. That was great. Well, uh, we don't shrink from the challenge that you've made, so I guess in some sense we welcome it. Uh, we, we probably have 15 or 20 minutes for some uh, questioning. L let me just ask you to expand a little bit, or, or contract in a way, on this very powerful argument for a universal flu vaccine, particularly uh, because you think it's in reach uh, scientifically, technologically. So, and I must say that unlike the medical countermeasures where the pharma industry always seems to say, well, we don't really know there'll be a market for it. Here, there's pretty clearly a big market for a, for a vaccine. Everybody will want to get the flu shot that works. So what, what, is it money? Is it the Markey bill or, or is it something else? How, how, how do we get there quicker than we will get there now? Well, first of all, we have several issues. One is the current pharmaceutical market basically enjoys an annual market, you might say, that's almost guaranteed. And so why would you want to cannibalize that? Right. Okay, so we've got to give them an incentive. Even though it's not working very well, as you uh, well, shown us. We still give it. We yeah. still pay the money for it. Right. The second thing, though, is the fact that this is going to take us a lot of resources. You know, and I just shared the number with you on HIV, and we're still doing that. This is in the billions of dollars to get there. So at the end of the time when we have a licensed product, we're using it worldwide, what is going to be the cost recovery on that? Who's going to pay for it? And if it's many billions of dollars to get this achieved, which to me is a very cheap investment on the cost of not doing it to the world, who's going to obviously pay back that billions and billions? Of so would we afford $125 or $130 immunization for flu once a time? That has to be worked out. Now, I, we can make the case that it surely is going to be cost-effective long run. But the point of it is, we don't even have that kind of leadership right now to make these cases. But Michael, we've done this. We did it in AIDS drugs. We did it in vaccines. We know how to put that business plan together. If you do volume and then you negotiate at a discounted price and then you get the countries in the world to pool their resources together, we've organized it at the international level to get this done. So I, I, I understand your argument, we haven't done it yet, but it's not like we haven't done it in a, in a whole set of areas. Amen. <laughs> That's exactly our point, is, is that this needs to be done. This is the leadership that would be part of that Manhattan Project we're talking about. You know, make the case for why it can and should be done. But no one's stepped up to the plate yet. You know, again, I give the NIH great credit for what they're doing, but if you look, none of that's in the plan. I mean, they're concentrated on that upfront science. There is nobody leading this effort anywhere that did exactly what you did so successfully with HIV. That's what we need. That's where your group can help call that out. Will do. Other questions from the yeah, panel? First of all, I just wish everybody in the room yeah. had the benefit of, uh, of uh, 
seen your extraordinarily impressive deck. I, I think this is, this is you had great decks today, I'll tell you that. <laughs> uh, all the way around. Can I just, you spent almost your entire time talking about the natural thread, and for good reason, and you know, the historical nature of it, how we ought to look at it, the fact that it is not prepared. Uh, can I assume from that that that's where you think our priority really ought to lie as we look at how we devote our resources and how we organize ourselves? Is it, <coughs> is it, do we look at both the national security and the natural implications of threat the same, or do we do what, what your presentation seems to imply, put our priorities in line and really look at this natural threat first? Well, thank you, Senator. That's goes really to the point you made earlier this morning, which I agree completely with, is it one or the other? It shouldn't be. But until we make a decision to fund these efforts at the level they need to be funded, we're going to be cannibalizing one for the other. And I think we're asking the wrong question. You know, why are we cannibalizing these as opposed to why are we not doing? You know, and again, I'm not a defense expert, and I would never for a moment suggest that. But I just, as a rational person, sit here and say 700 and some billion dollars a year 11 billion dollars a year, but in the end, as I described to you, it could happen with all the drugs, et cetera, we have a pandemic. You wanna create chaos, deaths, mortalities. Just look at this. And why are we not understanding the investment in this would be, and we did that with HIV. We did that with the issue around, uh, uh, you know, a number, like we're doing it right now with the HIV vaccine. So part of it is, we just have to get our priorities right. So I don't think, my emphasis was more because this part doesn't get told much, but as I pointed out in my book that I wrote in 2000, I've been on the edge of this. Um, you know, l let me just tell you, I mean, to this day, the most, probably most moving moments of my life. I got called in February of, of 1999, and I had served as an advisor to His Majesty King Sudanian Jordan on bioterrorism issues. And I got a call from the Jordanian embassy and said, His Majesty wants to see you right now. So I thought he must be in the United States somewhere. He was at his estate uh, in Ascot, outside of London. I literally, when the same clothes I went to work in was on a flight to London, I got picked up early in the morning, driven to the house. He got up in his robe. Uh, Queen Nora came down. I hadn't slept, still in the same clothes. And for five hours, he grilled me about smallpox, grilled me about smallpox. And I mean, I'll never forget that. Well, several weeks later, he wrote a very famous letter, which just missed his brother as the regent or heir apparent, appointed his son. But the whole letter was really about smallpox. I knew he knew something. I mean, the people in this room know intelligence-wise, we don't know what he knew. But I'll never, ever for a moment walk away without thinking that, you know, and he died four weeks later. I'll never walk away thinking he didn't know something. So I don't have to be reminded how severe this could be. It's just a matter, I think, we have to put it into our perspective. Thank you very much. If, if, phenomenal presentation. I'm sorry we couldn't put it on the screen for the audience. Yeah. <clears throat> I think the panel would agree with you. You need leadership. It's both political, but also from the medical sector and the like. Yep. And ideally, you'd want more money. I get all that. But let's just put the comparison of defense and uh, CDC aside. We know we need hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars, right? Are there research programs going on? Let's say this funding is static. Say we freeze everything. Are there research projects going on within federal facilities today on the on related issues that are more important than this? If you had to stop 
at CDC or stop some of the research that's going on out there? Are you saying everything else we're doing in government takes precedence over this? I'm not, I'm not looking for a... Uh, no, I, 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 what I'm, I'm trying to say is, is I'm not smart enough to this say... This seems to be as, as critical. We've, we've been talking about this all the time. We're, many of us are more concerned about Mother Nature throwing something at us uh, before Al-Qaeda does. And so this is uh, one of those things that are really troubling to us. And you talked about leadership. There is none. You talk about making a priority. There is none. So within the existing funding stream, because you, you operate in and out of that, how do you make this more of a priority? Well, it's not a CDC issue. Hmm? It's I'm sorry, it's an NIH issue. NIH, yeah. Well, yeah. I, think, I think there are two pieces to this. One is, I would agree with you, that in Hello. fact, you know, you know, basically, we have to look at this as not just what kills you. I mean, what kills us versus what hurts us versus what worries us versus what scares us can all be different. I mean, we literally almost brought down the U.S. Postal Service, as you know so well, yep. with a few cases yep. of anthrax. And anthrax, And absolutely. so so part of it, we also have to factor that in. There are going to be some diseases that are just going to cause such a calamity that, again, the impact are going to be so high they have to be prioritized. So I think this is part of what I come back to. So, yes, there is research, but I think the problem is we don't have a business model. Why are we sitting here? We don't have, why do we not have an Ebola-prepared Africa right now? We have a vaccine that has been shown to be highly effective, and we could be vaccinating healthcare workers, burial team members, taxi cab drivers voluntarily. So as many rods are in the reaction now as, as could be. But why? Because we don't have a major push to get this thing completed because what's the pot at the end of the tunnel? There's nothing. And, and so I think that's the challenge. We have to create the business model too. Imagine if you had to be an aircraft carrier contractor and you were selling them to other companies. Nobody would buy them. It's a government. So this is a role that government, for the sake of the public, has to take on. And so to answer your question, I don't know all the other research going on, that, yeah. but I would say the chances of this happening are absolute. It's going to happen. Yeah. And, and so we're going to, you know, as the old oil fram commercial once said, you can pay me now or you'll pay me later. Yeah. I, used friend, I used to have a friend that says, exploit the inevitable. Yeah. Exactly. This is going to happen. We have to figure out a way to exploit it. Exactly. I think, I think what we've come to feel uh, as we've gone on with our work it's not that we're not worried about a bioterrorist attack, but an infectious disease uh, pandemic uh, will come, and it's possible it'll kill a lot of people, a lot more than a bioterrorist attack will. So, in other words, they're both worries, but this is um, the potential for devastation here is well, great. And the strength of this argument is that it will disrupt the economy. Yeah, huge. There's a there. The business case is not simply the business case to put together the right stream, but it's also it will totally disrupt disrupt the international uh, economy. Yeah, I mean, as you pointed out, this could happen in China, not have any incidents over here. A little hard to imagine that. And it could still disrupt, our, it would obviously disrupt our economy because of the impact of, of the trade. So um, anyway, thank you. You've been, uh, pro, you've been a provocateur. Yeah. My job, thank you. Herb. Thank well you. Well done, well done. Come thank back you. again. <laughs> okay, next panel on uh, Transnational Biological Executive Director of the National Plant Diagnostic Network and uh, uh, Terence Taylor, uh, Colonel, British Army, retired president of the International Council for Life Sciences. Uh, thank you all very much.
uh, for being here. Okay. Do, do have you pre-agreed or? Okay. Dr. Rudolph, you're going first? I'm going first. That's a hard act to follow. Uh, but, uh, you can do it. I'm going to try. Um, so as you mentioned, I'm a chief research office at a land-grant public institute with a deep portfolio in biodefense, um, and I appreciate the panel's invitation today. I wanted to share with you some points around uh, how land-grant institutes like ours address these issues. Um, I'll start out by saying that my 20-year history starts at DARPA in the mid-90s uh, when we started building the first biodefense programs uh, at DARPA. And even then, our focus, just as some of the echoes of time you heard Mike talking about, was to get out of the one bug, one drug, now one bill approach and try to consider some broad spectrum approaches. So we were talking about broad spec spectrum flu vaccines 25 years ago and starting the first investments. My teachers were Josh Letterberg and mentors like Richard Danzig, George Whitesides, and George Post. I know I was an ex officio member here, and Roger Breeze. Yet one of the points I'll make is that the teachers of operational use in areas of needed solutions were lacking then and in many respects are lacking now. So in, as we've heard, we, we do have technology solutions. We don't know how to often use them, and we don't know how to deploy them, and I want to talk a little bit more about that. In considering transnational threats, uh, I was shown early on the power of scientific collaboration as the underpinning of building a transnational program. We were debriefing the offensive biological program at the time in the mid-90s, and we had delegates going over to Russia. Andy Weber's in the audience now. And we were uh, reviewing Russian proposals, building collaborations with Russian scientists. Why? Because the foundation and underpinnings of what could happen were built in the intellectual capacity of these countries, and we knew we had to penetrate that and start building relationships. And in fact, I think land-grant universities are now looked at for building those relationships again. Um, they're given example, uh, I served as uh, leading the science technology programs in chem biodefense at uh, DOD and then DHS before leaving government. And these programs now, in terms of the non-Luger programs to build capacity in overseas, are turning to land-grant institutions. And one of my experiences uh, when I was at the Defense Threat Reduction Agency, I had a card that said I was uh, director of weapons of mass destruction. And then when you went into countries, uh, into the customs agent, you handed him that card, you often were uh, delayed. If I go in now with my card that says I'm a professor of biomedical sciences, um, the relationships that I build uh, become more formative in the context of that capacity building. And I think the U.S. government has realized that certainly in the programs at AID and DOD that are working those. So um, when I uh, led DITRA and DH Science and Technology, we also had specific focus on biosurveillance and point of uh, need diagnostics. And I think we all recognize that getting out ahead of these problems in surveillance and diagnostics um, has really been one of the repeated focus. In fact, last week, uh, the new innovation group over at BARDA launched another RFI on yet another program to pre-symptomatically pre identify these threats and do surveillance so that we can learn earlier of an outbreak and perhaps mitigate it. And having been uh, through 20 years of experience and seeing the diagnostic companies uh, go at this, I would again echo that uh, we have plenty of solutions 
we don't know how to use them. We don't have operational use scenarios that are either effective or lead our investments in a way that are either efficient or impactful once made. Um, now, at an now an academic in a land-grant university at Colorado State, um, you know, we've built a significant number of assets that are in play around biodefense, and I want to point to some of the gaps that I think um, are worth highlighting. We know that the zoonotic channel from animals is the most significant source of new pathogen threats, and yet we're woefully under-resourced, and our focus of attention on that is lacking. And so I think there's an opportunity to look at the ecosystem science. So there are other terms for this, a One Health approach. Um, I think there's been greater awareness of this, but uh, we are lacking fundamental understanding in how pathogens are transmitted in our environment and how the dynamics of the evolution of these pathogens, whether it's related to antimicrobial resistance or the emergence of a new threat, are poorly understood. So let me give you an example of what an institution like ours is doing, which I think are opportunities. It's not unique, I think, to ecosystem science, but opportunities for biodefense to take note. Um, inside uh, biosafety level three containment, of which we have in, um, significant assets built on the regional centers of excellence investments made by HHS in 2004, we're recreating uh, barnyards and markets uh, that mimic Asian markets that mimic mixed animal species around the world. We're able to take camels into containment and look at the movement of something like Middle East respiratory syndrome from a vector to a host. And I believe that we have um, focused too myopically on uh, the process by which we define these countermeasures as solutions and not taken notice of the natural complexity in which they exist. And yet I think we have tools now and methods and certainly science capability in this country and others to attack these problems in new ways. And I suggest that it will re reveal both new discoveries but new solutions where we can actually test sensors, diagnostics, and vaccines. Now in the front range, we actually had a case of bubonic plague that was transmitted from a dog. We have prairie dogs in the region. We have endemic anthrax, endemic tularemia, and endemic plague. And so the other under-recognized uh, opportunity is that in the natural ecosystems, we have the ability now to study some things and look at them in new ways around surveillance and interceding these kinds of events. The thing I want to end with uh, and leave my uh, fellow panel, man, panel members enough time is that uh, we really recognized your recent fall report on ag biodefense. And we've linked up in the, in the heartland with five or six land grants to address some of the recommendations there. And I, and I think one of your recommendations, clearly on Pennside Diagnostics, is an echo of the same kind of issue of moving information faster uh, and being more um, uh, thoughtful and impactful in acting on that information in terms of surveillance and outbreak. So we're really changing uh, the language uh, and the ability to um, intercede. And I would urge you to think about that language because one of the things we're finding is that the use of the language of foreign animal diseases is impeding the regional interest and engagement around acting in this space. And what does that mean? It means when you're a farmer, 
the last thing you want to be told is I'm going to cull your herd because I've detected a threat that the government is interested in. So how do we get those folks engaged? Sometimes it's social cultural things that we do and the use of language. Another thing land grants are very good at is social cultural adaptations. They're the first tech transfer uh, system in the United States. We have people in every county of our states. And so not only do we work on technology solutions, but we work on these social cultural things that are really important to the adoption of new ideas or the adoption of solutions. So even if we have a vaccine for Ebola, if we don't address the issues around burial or the social cultural issues around the use of these solutions, um, we will fail. And I think this is another area for social science and those uh, institutes and organizations that take, take note of that kind of building of a resilient system for pathogen defense. Thank you. Very interesting. Um, I hadn't thought about it at all. I, while we're on definition, and you just mentioned it, I'm, I was going to ask Dr. Osterholm, because he listed antimicrobial resistance right up under influenza as uh, threats. So everybody, the public understands what influenza is. It's flu. It's flu. What, what, how do you describe to the public what antimicrobial resistance is? Uh, that is a, a definite challenge, much like the GMO uh, issue that we yeah. face. Uh, yeah. And so I think, in my view, uh, that's really felt at the pocketbook. And in the cases we see where uh, going into the public health system, um, more and more frequency of w drugs that used to work not working are taking their toll. So I think we're seeing more of it presented both in social media and in opportunities to educate the public. But there is a misunderstanding even of the use of antibiotics in the animal population, right? We don't really uh, know uh, that there is a relationship between the use of antimicrobials uh, in animals and what they do in human health, and yet there's a lot of supposition around that. Yeah, so what it is is that our bodies are developing resistance to what we would call antibiotics, and therefore they're not effective. Yeah, that what, what you've heard other speakers talk about, and uh, I'm not a microbiologist by training, I'm a zoologist by training, but the pathogens themselves are evolving resistance mechanisms gotcha. uh, to, to, and so that's that's really what's thwarting the use of what we have had in our armamentarium right. of antimicrobials. In both animals and in humans. That's correct. Which the same thing the in any biological making. organism. Yeah. That's why the fitness pressures and looking at an ecosystem are so important. Right. Thanks. Thanks, Dr. Rudolph. Uh, Dr. Stack, welcome. Uh, or, uh, while we're on the question of definition, I know you're going to uh, redefine for us the word blast. We use it now in different ways. There was a blast. I'm having a blast. You know, <laughs> <laughs> um, it's just in regards to uh, the virulence, the magnitude of disease that occurs in a short time period. Right. So it's, it's just uh, an explosive epidemic. And it's, it applies uniquely to one sector, or can it be used uh, uh, humans, well, it, animals, plants, et cetera? Yeah, globally it <coughs> has become associated with, a, with diseases caused by a particular organism for the most right. part, and that's Magnaporthia rhizae. It's a fungus. Uh, there are many host specialized populations of that fungus, um, uh, but that's part of the problem of managing it. Okay, sorry, all yours. Well, so good afternoon, and, good afternoon and thank you for the opportunity 
to meet with you today and um, specifically regarding the importance of including plant health when considering transnational biological threats and global security. As you requested, I will offer a few comments on wheat blast, on genome-based diagnostics, and uh, offer a few targeted investments that might help improve things. Good. So approximately 59% of the world's population survives almost exclusively on a plant-based diet. Most of the nutritional information that is distributed by the U.S. government calls for increasing the amounts of fruits and vegetables to achieve optimal human health. Plant health is prerequisite to human health and well-being. We eat plants and we feed plants to the animals that we eat. We have fully embraced global trade as a primary strategy to enhance our economy, to lift developing nations out of poverty, and to achieve global food security. We now need to accept the responsibility for the consequences of that global trade, namely the massive geographic redistribution of pests and pathogens with the potential to cause extensive environmental and economic damage that could take decades to recover from. With respect to plant health, the geographic boundaries that once kept organisms confined to certain areas have become irrelevant. We put plants on airplanes and we fly them over mountains. We put plants and plant products on ships and we transport them across oceans. Uh, with those plants and plant products, we're moving pests and pathogens at an alarming rate. Plants also serve as vehicles to disseminate vectors of public health concern. As mentioned earlier, the Asian tiger mosquito uh, we moved that on ornamental bamboo plants from one continent to another. There are now and will continue to be consequences associated with this unprecedented level of global mixing. Border inspections and prevention measures, although important, are insufficient to deal with the magnitude of introductions of new organisms associated with the trade of plants and plant products. The nature of these consequences will, be, will impact the economy, the environment, and national security. Despite the great diversity of plants on Earth, just four plant species, rice, wheat, maize, and potatoes, supply over 60% of the calories that sustain humans. Over the next 30 years, we will add 2 billion people to the planet, and by the end of the century, an additional 1.5 billion people. Most of them will rely on those four plant species for nutrition. Wheat is grown on more acres globally than any other plant, and it provides approximately 17% of the protein in the human diet. We need to protect wheat. A fungal pathogen of wheat emerged in South America causing serious epidemics in Brazil, Bolivia, and Paraguay. In 2016, it spread to Bangladesh, and in 2017, it spread into India, likely mediated by trade. Wheat blast epidemics have reduced yields 50 to 90% in those areas where it occurs regularly. Over the past two years, the governments of India and Bangladesh have resorted to large-scale burning of production fields in order to slow the spread of wheat blast. Many poor, small-scale farmers have lost everything, driving them deeper into poverty. The inaugural scientific workshop in Bangladesh to develop a response plan for that nation had to be moved to Nepal due to terrorism attacks in the Bangladeshi capital. This is a regional stability issue in a nuclear neighborhood not a good scenario. Despite the potential implications for human health and national security, there are no funding programs currently available to support the research necessary to address this growing threat. This, this despite the fact that an international group of over 400 scientists placed the blast pathogen at number one on a list of top 10. This is a serious disease that requires serious attention. 
Fungicides remain an important tool in managing diseases caused by fungi. There is an analogous issue in plant health to the growing antibiotic resistance problem in human health that we've just heard about, namely the increase in fungicide-resistant populations of important plant pathogens. Recent reports from South America and Europe indicate that emerging populations with simultaneous resistance to at least three fungicide chemistries have emerged. This will greatly impair our ability to manage the diseases they cause. Plants are vulnerable to diseases caused by the full complement of pathogenic microorganisms, including bacteria, viruses, viroids, fungi, mycoplasmas, rickettsias, and nematodes. Plant pathogens are diverse with respect to the types of diseases they cause, blights, blasts, rots, and spots, diverse in their methods of dispersal, wind, water, arthropod vectors, and equipment, in their survival capability a few months to many years, and diverse in mechanisms and magnitude of genetic variation clonal, sexual, hypervariable. Phytosanitary policy and consequently phytosanitary decisions are based on the names of the pests and pathogens. Getting identification right matters. Getting it right quickly matters even more. There are multiple examples in many countries of uh, the massive negative impacts of incursions magnified substantially by either a delayed identification or a misidentification of the newly introduced organism. The challenges we face today are the ever finer levels of taxonomic resolution necessary to identify newly introduced organisms. With respect to plant pathogens, identification to the species level of resolution is rarely sufficient. We often must identify organisms to the level of strain or population. For example, the outbreak strain of 2010 from Southern Italy or the fungicide-resistant population from the UK. Looking through a microscope will not do. Uh, it requires sophisticated diagnostic assays based on advanced genomic technologies. Trade decisions, response plans, mitigation measures all depend on the identification. Getting it right and getting it right quickly matters. Next-generation sequencing technologies have ushered in a new era in diagnostics, frequently allowing resolution to the strain level of discrimination and providing information relevant to ge geographic and phylogenetic origin. That is, we not only identify the organism, but we can determine where it came from and perhaps its evolutionary heritage. This approach to diagnostics requires whole genome sequencing and sophisticated bioinformatics tools. The investment in genome-based diagnostics might appear high, but it's quite small relative to the enormous costs associated with the consequences of a miss or missed identification. Diagnostics are critically dependent upon rapidly evolving technologies and a highly skilled workforce that requires constant professional development to keep pace with emerging pathogens, evolving technologies, and the constant incursions resulting from trade and travel. Over the past 10 years, the National Plant Diagnostic Network has processed plant samples and rendered diagnoses for approximately 97% of the over 3,000 counties in the U.S. and its territories, a testament to the land-grant system that was referred to in the previous comment. NPDN has reached and served the nation's plant systems well, yet its diagnostic technologies are aging, and there is no funding at present to replace or update. The technologies that underpin modern diagnostics require significant investment, but the returns on those investments are many-fold higher. If we wish to safeguard the plant industries behind the multi-billion dollar export industries, we have to invest in that. The rate of evolution of technology 
has outpaced the evolution of policy. When the policy catches up, will we be prepared to meet the more stringent requirements to certify exports and to declare areas free of pests and pathogens? Uncertain that moment. So the targeted areas of investment that I was requested to do. One, invest in the National Plant Diagnostic Network at a level adequate to address the increasing threats to plant systems and equal to the demands of the plant systems and industries it supports. Two, invest in the research necessary to better identify geographic hotspots for the emergence of new plant pathogens and pests and to better understand their potential impacts to natural and managed plant systems. Three, invest in the research necessary to develop novel and durable host plant resistance strategies to mitigate against newly emerged and recurrent high consequence plant pathogens and pests. The global food systems that have reduced hunger, improved nutrition, raised standards of living, and elevated public health globally carry with them certain risks that if left unmanaged will almost certainly lead to long-term negative impacts to food security, standards of living, and public health. We have become complacent due to our success in putting food on the table. Most of the American population lives within 15 miles of a grocery store that sells whatever we want 24-7. We have forgotten what it took to get where we are, the research and education programs and the infrastructure. We are under-investing in the very infrastructure and programs that brought us to this point and that are necessary to protect our food systems. There is a very long list of plant diseases globally that are currently threatening entire industries and plant systems. Nature has not exhausted her potential to generate novel biological entities with combinations of genetic traits that threaten the very living systems that we depend on. We depend upon plants and the products that we derive from plants. We have embraced and are reaping the many benefits from the global economy. We need to accept the responsibility for the consequences of that global economy. We need to build and maintain plant and food systems with the ability to keep pace with transnational biological threats. The implications for global security with an expanding population are significant. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> Thanks, Dr. Stack, very much. Colonel Taylor, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thank you very much, uh, Senator. Uh, I'm sorry. Thank you very much, Senator. I'm honored to be asked to contribute to this Blue Ribbon Panel on Biological Defense. Um, my background is in the military background. Uh, partly in counterinsurgency and counterterrorism. I've been an arms control negotiator, nuclear, chemical, and biological. Um, I've been involved in investigations of, in Russia of the biological weapons program there, the historical aspects of it, and in Iraq as a, a weapons of mass destruction inspector and, and commissioner. Um, so I feel I've lived with this subject for a decade or two um, uh, from so my particular perspective, of course, is in, in the international side of it rather than the national side of it. Um, and I feel uh, I've been sitting at the intersection of science, technology, and policy for a long time. And that particular area interests me greatly. And many of the flaws we see and would have been identified earlier today are because that intersection does not work as well as it could do and you need, one needs organizational arrangements to overcome that, and we've heard some good ideas. Now, many experts have uh, already given many words of wisdom. Uh, when you're later in the day, uh, it's a bit of a challenge, 
Um, and so perhaps I'm going to repeat some things, but that may be helpful to you because you want to see where the expertise converges. So no apology for repeating certain things. Um, so in this brief intervention, I'll focus on the perspective of biological risks from the international point of view and ways of countering the risks or mitigating them, perhaps is the more accurate way of stating it. Uh, and my experiences both in the governmental sector and in the non-governmental sector, um, because I'm now um, involved with my International Council for the Life Sciences, which has been going for some 13 years now. Uh, I don't know if you have uh, in front of you this, um, but uh, the full spectrum of biological risks. Um, and if I'd like you to, to look at that. I know it's been perhaps stated already. And think of all the different government agencies and departments are involved in different parts of that spectrum. Also look at it internationally too, with all the different agencies involved um, uh, and the, the dangers of stovepiping, which has already been discussed and how we get around these uh, particular stovepipe obstacles is a real challenge. As has already been said, extraordinary advances in biotechnologies and, uh, and other related technologies, because there are no boundaries these days, physics, chemistry, um, uh, biology, uh, uh, information technology are all interwoven, particularly in the biotechnology area. And they brought, as we know, enormous benefits uh, to medicine, public health, the food industry, agriculture, and industrial uh, processes. We have to be careful because this dissemination of, uh, of the technology and the science brings enormous benefits. Uh, care must be taken not to damage this dissemination. The trick is to do it safely and as securely as possible. And, uh, and so acting internationally, this is a challenge because there is a north-south, if I may use that crude phrase, challenge here uh, that you know, maintaining a monopoly of the technology or the science um, is politically challenging and counterproductive. Of course, the reality is you can't put a boundary on the knowledge, on the dissemination of knowledge. So what we're doing is swimming in an ocean of risk when we have to learn how we swim in this ocean of risk. Uh, of course, as has already been said, um, the, when you're looking at the risks along this spectrum, um, there, is, there is an increasing risk of the misuse of the technologies at the intentional end of that uh, spectrum. Um, but uh, as I've said, we have to be careful that the full humanitarian and economic benefits will be enjoyed. Um, and uh, it needs to be all effectively managed. In the governmental, academic, and industrial sectors, the, the dissemination of technology is very much an international activity. Most uh, serious scientific projects are international right from the very start. There have been a number of examples of challenges raised in this regard, uh, particularly in the avian influenza work, research work that was done by Erasmus um, Institute in the Netherlands and also Wisconsin University in the United States. They're all international teams from the start, so many lessons have been learned from that. Um, and, and many, we have to also remember in the commercial sector, it's a multi-billion dollar business um, and comprised of thousands of small, medium-sized and of course 
large number, large companies as well. And the landscape of these uh, activities is constantly changing the whole time. So if you're thinking in terms of, uh, we've earlier had some discussion of measures being put in place and so on, you have to remember the landscape against which you're making measures. Measures you might make today, by the time the ink is dry on perhaps a convention or some international measure, uh, it's out of date. It's overtaken by the advances in technology. And I'm not going to dwell on it, but this is the case, for example, in the Chemical Weapons Convention. It's been overtaken by the technology. That doesn't, mean, doesn't of course, mean that the general purpose criteria in banning the use of chemical weapons is undermined. Not at all. It's the implementation side of it uh, which is a challenge. And uh, what we have to do is somehow engage across this spectrum all the different agencies. And uh, the... Um, if you were to think about the biological side, uh, you have the, um, the United Nations Security Council itself, and I'll say a little bit more about that later on, the World Health Organization, the World Animal Health Organization, uh, the International Criminal Police Organization, Interpol is involved in implementation. Uh, but both domestically and internationally, we don't have a holistic risk assessment process that connects these natural, accidental, and intentional. There are risk assessments being conducted, but they're all in little parts. And what it seems to me is lacking, and this could be achieved within the United States, a holistic risk assessment which compels agencies to work together. And I think it might take a novel approach to actually develop a model that uh, lasts over time and can adapt over time, just like biological organisms will do. Um, as uh, the, the now to come to a few words about international collaboration and in my experience I, I must say how valuable the State Department led biological engagement program is uh, and merits more investment I believe and as most know the program involves other government agencies not of course just the State Department Defense, DHS, DHHS um, and other uh, agencies as well. Um, and the program engages on both biological safety and security aspects, and it's very important to deal with those subjects together, not as discrete subjects. That's hugely important, particularly if you're engaging internationally, if you want people to work with you. If you come through the door with a security hat on, uh, you might not get the kind of engagement that you would hope to get, but you need to have them both together, not lose sight of the security aspects. And uh, certainly in my experience working in many countries around the world, this works um, extremely well. Um, in, uh, in the UK, trying to bring the civil and military agencies together, the Defence Science Technology Laboratories works with all the other agencies in the UK, um, Foreign and Commonwealth Office might lead, but with the public health authorities within the United Kingdom uh, as well, in order to promote international activities to promote biological safety and security. And I, I, I should, uh, obviously I come from, a, at the moment now, an, a non-governmental organisation, and one should not underestimate the role that can be played by such organisations in mitigating biological risks particularly in areas where it might be difficult for the United States government to, for political reasons and so on, uh, to play a, a, an obvious and proactive role. And so the non-governmental sector can play a really important role to enhance United States 
uh, security. I'll just mention, because I think it's worth mentioning, because people forget what the international legally binding instruments are, and they are key entry points for engaging international activities to assist states, particularly in regions of concern. I won't go into what they are at the moment, because that would take a long time uh, for their effective implementation. I have no illusion about their limitations, um, but they are really important instrument to help in promoting biological safety and security around the world. There are currently 180 states that belong to the Biological Weapons Convention that bans possession of biological weapons, stockpiling and, and development and so on. The use of biological weapons is banned by the 1925 Geneva Protocol, which is its complementary element to it. And uh, by now, the Geneva Protocol is recognized as part of international customary law, so it, it applies to all states. That's the general international legal view on that. The Biological Weapons Convention, must be remembered, is not a simple state-to-state -state, uh, agreement. Of course, it is. States are parties to it. But in Article 4 of that convention, states are required to implement and put in place uh, national legislation affecting their citizens and anyone on their territory. Uh, a long time ago, Biological Weapons Convention in the, in the 1980s, uh, but it was the first global security treaty to require legislation domestically in, among the states' parties. It's really important to remember, sometimes forgotten. A second legally binding instrument is the UN Security Council Resolution 1540 of 2004, along with its most recent reinforcing resolution, 2325 of 2016. Important to pick up that second one. And these instruments are legally binding on all states. And in today's context about terrorism, they have particular relevance as they're aimed at preventing non-state actors from um, manufacturing, acquiring, possessing, developing, transporting, or using seven deadly sins, uh, the biological weapons, but also nuclear and chemical ones as well. And this in instrument, I think, uh, tends to be underestimated in its power in the sense of using it as a tool to engage countries all around the world. It applies to all states and is legally binding. That's the thing to remember. And the, the, uh, it also bans a resolution anybody giving assistance, financial assistance, for example. Um, and uh, states are required not to support non-state actors. And I think in today's context, that's something well worth uh, remembering. Properly implemented the resolution, um, as I know from my own experience over the past five years, I was in New York for the past five years working in support of the Security Council on this subject as the coordinator of the experts supporting them. Um, I know that states are open to receiving assistance uh, to improve their implementation. And there's still a great deal of work to be done in encouraging states and regions of high risk and enhancing the legal enforcement and promoting practical implementation measures. The US has been a leader in promoting effective implementation of the resolution, particularly in terms of its financial support. It's pretty modest, actually. It's four and a half million dollars support given over the past, uh, during the time I was there. Um, uh, if you divide that by five, that's not much, many dollars per year, but it brings a terrific return. If that was doubled, 
uh, it would make a huge difference. And it's well worth thinking about. It's, it's small investment, big return. That's one of those things, and I can expand on that if you like. The third legally binding instrument is, already mentioned already, is the World Health Assembly's International Health Regulation of 2005. And it's already been said the purpose is to prevent, protect, against, control, and provide public health response to the international spread of disease. And it's not limited, this is important, to specific diseases now, but applies to new and constantly changing public health risks and is designed to have a long-lasting relevance in the international response to the emergence and spread of disease, irrespective of its origin. That is to say, whether natural, accidental, or deliberate. And the negotiations for this health regulation, um, of course, there was resistance to having the security aspects or deliberate aspects to be included. But since any outbreak uh, of international significance has to be reported, and the states need to have the capability to identify, diagnose, and have the surveillance system to be able to do that, a deliberate attack would be of international significance, just by its very nature, just inherently so. So it is a legally binding instrument that can be used, and again, as an engagement tool to assist states in helping them improve their surveillance and diagnostic capabilities. The WHO does what it can, with very limited resources, and it needs uh, direct assistance from states that will um, make a big difference. Before concluding, I'll just say a word about verification attribution. Actually, literally just a few words, but I think it's a really interesting subject to, to discuss, and I think the panel should be considering it. You might want to have a session uh, in this regard uh, to understand what can be done and what can't, can't be done. And uh, Senator Lieben, you raised in your opening remarks the events in, um, in Salisbury, actually. That event took place 200 yards from where I was born, so it has a significance to me in Salisbury in England. Uh, also, don't forget the attack in Kuala Lumpur as well. Uh, one could argue this is, uh, it could be state-sponsored, almost certainly, but using possibly um, uh, non-governmental people to, to carry it out, possibly, possibly not, we don't really know. Um, but these were chemical, uh, not biological. And we already discovered in those attacks the difficulties of attribution, which are obvious uh, in this regard. Verification attribution are terribly difficult. We even see that on a larger scale of use in Syria. The, the organization with the prohibition of chemical weapons has particular challenges in that regard. They're both political and, of course, technical. And uh, so I'd like to end up with three recommendations. First, the U.S. should continue its international collaborative activities and expand its supports for states that need help in implementing their legal obligations under the instruments that I just mentioned. Small investment, big return, engagement is a big plus in terms of getting people to do the right thing. I know this from my own experience in various countries around the world. I'll be going to Pakistan in two weeks' time to talk about these very issues uh, at their invitation and I can see what benefits it, it can bring. Uh, develop a risk assessment methodology applicable across the full spectrum that you have on the chart in front of you, natural, accidental, and deliberate, that takes account of the developments in science and technology and the evolution of techniques used and to be 
considered for use by terrorists. This evolution of terrorism is hugely important in looking at the way they do things, not just in the biological area, but all the communications they're using, the IT they're using, you know, the delivery means they're using. I think it's all relevant. We should be tracking it all. The Interpol have a, a system called Watchmaker, which, which brings in a database all the improvised explosive devices together so they can identify who made what device simply by looking at the techniques. We should be doing the same, including biological and chemical uh, and possibly radiological weapons as well. And, and finally, and this is a technical recommendation, it's been mentioned already, promote the development of simple, rapid on-site diagnostic technologies to help the implementation of countermeasures and, uh, and it is apparent that an infectious disease outbreak was deliberately caused. You need prompt action. In the private sector, I've been involved with the development of a rapid on-site diagnostic, diagnostic device for Legionella, not the top of the range for uh, you know, a, a weapon or anything of that sort, but it's an important public health uh, thing. At the moment, uh, the diagnostic method in public health authorities around the world, not just the United States, is to go to a, a sample, goes to the lab, laboratory, takes 10 to 12 days to identify the, the, the zero group or the, the pathogen itself. There is a technology on the market now using an app on an iPhone, which is simply takes uh, 20 minutes to get a result. And this is, a, I think, somebody earlier said very uh, rightly, uh, let's move from flip phones to iPhones very quickly. Thank you very much for our attention. Thanks, Colonel. I appreciate uh, very much your testimony and your recommendations. Governor Ridge, I know, has to go on a personal appointment soon. I'm going to ask you before you go if you want to ask a couple of questions. Just, just a couple of quick questions. Uh, Dr. Stack, I think uh, on behalf of the panel, we're grateful that you brought up something that we haven't paid as much attention to, perhaps as we should. We focus on the pathogens and the threats to humans and the animals. We haven't paid as much attention. But you help us pay attention to food production. You talk about an interdependency, domestic, globally. And <laughs> so, number one, we're very grateful for that. Thank you. Very, very positive testimony. You mentioned that the devices or the technology that heretofore have been used to help identify some of these blast pathogens need to be revised. We need more innovation. We need more tools in order to do that. And both you and your colleague, Dr. Rudolph, have paid particular attention to land-grant schools and the governor of Pennsylvania. I appreciate that, Penn State. We, under we understand what those are all about. Uh, but if you're going to make the investment to enhance uh, to develop the capability that you believe needs uh, to be upgraded, uh, where do we place it? I think you, you simultaneously develop or uh, put that into the research on the organism as well as into the development right. of the technologies. Correct. And um, these technologies that we're talking about, genome-based technologies, what they've allowed us to do is learn more about the organism. So not just develop the diagnostic tools. Uh, um, we were all somewhat surprised about how quickly antibiotic resistance spread around the globe. We now kind of understand the mechanism behind that, how that was possible. Uh, so these technologies are very powerful, but um, we've had limited application of them. Right. We, we need to learn more about these organisms, how they evolve, where they're most likely to evolve from. We have a, a hypothesis on this blast 
uh, group of organisms uh, in South America, but uh, we don't really have the resources to investigate it to see if we're correct. On the technology side, um, uh, Terrence Taylor made a, made a mention about uh, on-site diagnostics. Uh, we're now in the position of taking some of these extremely powerful laboratory-based technologies and utilizing them in the field. We need a little bit more push on that. Uh, we're just at the front side of that, but the results so far are very encouraging in terms of the speed with which some of the organisms we work, I work with one of the select agents. Uh, we've developed a, a, an on-site protocol that gives us a preliminary answer in eight minutes. We get a confirmed answer in 30 minutes on-site in some really remote areas. So these technologies are very powerful. We just need a little bit push. Other than uh, Kansas State and Colorado State, are there any other any other places we got to put the money? <laughs> uh, no, I, I think we're okay with that. <laughs> no, I, Dr. Rudolph, please. I, I thought uh, uh, Dr. Stack's comment earlier about the National Plant Diagnostic System right. is, is really an important one. That That's woefully underfunded, just like the National Animal Health Laboratory Networks. These are significant sources of diagnostic uh, surveillance. And as we develop new platforms to push diagnostics out, they become the place where you want to evolve from a brick of mortar, send me the sample, and a week to two weeks later, I send you the answer to essentially data nodes that are taking feeds from the iPhones and all the platforms we see handheld. But it's really a national system, a node network that exists, but it's just not been used and funded. Oh, I think your challenge is that Unlike human health, where we've had the NIH and um, the private sector, um, in agriculture, plant and animals, the major funder has been the Department of Agriculture. And as they've phased out those extraordinary investments that built these great land-grant um, sciences, um, it's been very difficult. They've had to look other places for funding. but. Um, ag needs to step up again because they have to see the relationship between the research on plants and on animals and the kind of biodefense things that we're talking about here. And I say that as the former chancellor of Wisconsin-Madison, another land grant. Land grant. But, um, no, yeah. that's, that's an, an important point, but I just flew in from the Bay Area where Mars Corporation was holding an Ag Tech Innovation Summit. Mm -hmm. And in the venture capital community, there's been a significant uptake, uptick in Ag Tech. Mm -hmm. And why? I mean, even when we were developing drones at DARPA, we didn't expect the agricultural sector to take up drones first. But if the cost of the technology drops, and diagnostics, the cost of unit, per, per, cost of unit information per cost is dropping, that you're seeing a lot of the crossover of diagnostic platforms developed for humans and animals into the plant community now. Yeah. So the cost of information is dropping now fast enough, and the ag tech community is starting to, to take hold and aware and invest. It's a very important point. But nowhere near the kind of no. base funding you need from uh, the Department uh, of Agriculture. I wonder if I might um, uh, ask another question, and that is the relationship between climate change and what you're seeing uh, in your research, because that's the broader context as I understand it. So there, there are many aspects embedded in that, but uh, it's very clear that plant, whole plant systems, whole plant communities are moving, migrating up mountains. So they're occurring at higher elevations. They're moving north in latitude. Uh, a figure from the UK 
historically in the month of January, there would be between 10 and 12 species of plants flowering. For the past three or four years, it's been in, in the neighborhood of 300 species of plants flowering. Mm -hmm. A paper in Nature of uh, just two years ago, it was a, a global collaboration among scientists, but the bottom line is plant, plants are flowering approximately 14, 12 to 14 days earlier uh, than historic. And the, one of the consequences of that is that the pollinators are not necessarily evolving with them. Right. And so we're starting to see a separation of the plants that require bees for pollination and the bee pollinators themselves. So in time, there will be a consequence to that with respect to fertility and, and reproduction. So there are a lot of aspects, but if you think about how we do trade, we do a pest risk assessment, which means we evaluate um, where an organism occurs, we look at the environmental conditions of the past 10, 20, 30 years, so that we try to understand what are the environmental conditions that will allow this organism to flourish. Then we do climate matching. We look around the world and we say, well, in these places, it's just like this, so we probably ought to restrict trade from here to there. The problem is with climate change, the future is not predictable based on the last 10 to 20 years. So how do we do effective PRAs to support trade? That's a question we haven't answered yet. The only thing I would add is that, um, you know, it's often said that climate is weather over time. And we also, in addition to the climate change uh, comments Dr. Stack made, I think we're also looking at weather. So, for example, in the, in the context of creating ecosystems and containment, we're able to make rain. And we know that rain is a significant mixing of phenomenon. Flooding is a significant effect on movement of pathogens, their evolution. So there are indefinite both climate and weather effects on, on both the pathogens and the hosts. And I think uh, these are areas of rich study. Uh, Tom, Ken, any questions? satisfied that the level of engagement on all three levels is satisfactory? Is it, I, we just talked about climate and that. That makes me wonder whether, whether on science especially, uh, with the withdrawal of the United States from the Paris Agreement, um, you run into obstacles uh, regarding all three of these components that impede our ability to coordinate. But could you just talk a little bit about the degree to which that coordination is working in those three contexts? I've been voted to go first. Um, <laughs> Thank you very because much. Because they, they knew it took someone courageous. <laughs> uh, well, I think you hit on a really important point. I tried to make that point in our recommendations. And I think used properly, uh, there's, let me answer the question specifically, there's not enough investment in doing that, particularly internationally. Uh, one vehicle that uh, I found from my own experience really successful, relevant to uh, defense and security aspects, is the responsible conduct of science. And the entry point there in, in a number of countries in the Middle East and in South Asia and Southeast Asia. And the responsible conduct of science has a real 
really important for academics and science, also people in industry, because they want to have international collaborations from which they will benefit. And one can have a very deep conversation with them about responsible conduct of science to do with ethics, proper use, properly not using falsified data, the, all these other aspects, as well as the safety and security aspects. And that's a, a field which really works very well. There is the World Conference on Research Integrity, which is very much US-led uh, at, the, at the moment. I think DHHS, uh, within DHHS, as someone who is really leading it, I think that's really successful. They meet every two or maybe three years. Uh, I think that could, could be built on. There is a slight resistance to having the word security anywhere in the discussion, but that can be, I think, readily overcome. As In my experience at the United Nations, where we were responsible for bringing together the science, technology, and the policy, that was our job in the Security Council. We went to many countries around the world, and the door was already open, and we got many requests for assistance, which we, we responded to. So uh, is it working? I think we're not exploiting it as much as it could, which will make the United States safer and the world more generally safer, because there's a readiness to join in a conversation about this. So more investment, and we're not talking about billions of dollars here. We're talking about a few million, which will make a terrific difference. Thank you. Uh, thank you all. Unless either of you have anything I just wanted to add, add one Rudolph? thing on that. I'd be remiss if the leader of a higher education institute wouldn't talk about this issue in the context of the future workforce. Because the biggest worry I have in answering this question is we're not training the next generation of biodefense workers in science, technology, or policy. And, and just like uh, Terrence Taylor said, it would take a little bit of money to mobilize a postdoc force or a graduate student force attentive to this problem where your solution might come in five or 10 years. Thank I mean, you. unfortunately, it sounds like there'll be uh, a demand for people with such training in the future. So what, why, why are, uh, is there just, are there not programs? I think there are not programs. There's not awareness of the problem to the extent of what graduate pro students could do. Yes, we're training people in microbiology, yeah. but we're not vectoring them towards this problem. Right. Uh, thank, thank you, all three of you very much. You made a substantial contribution to our work, and we appreciate it. Uh, we're sticking with us. That wasn't bad. 225. Um, okay, this is the uh, final panel of a uh, very productive and uh, informative day with a lot of challenges given to our panel. On this, we have the uh, Honorable Andrew Natsios, who I remember fondly and well as the administrator of USAID, now the uh, director of the Scowcroft Institute of International Affairs and professor at the George H.W. Bush Government School, School of Government and Public Service at Texas A&M. Of course, all our thoughts and prayers are with President Bush. Scott Dell, uh, doctor, deputy director of surveillance and epidemiology at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and uh, Dr. Elizabeth Cameron, Vice President for Global Biological Policy and Programs at NTI. Uh, this has been a, humble, a, a group of witnesses with a humblingly high level of education. <laughs> anyway, that's why it's been a productive day. Have you all decided who should go first? Uh, if not, uh, uh, Honorable Andrew Natsios, it's good to see you again. Nice to see you, Senator.
Senator, I think we actually met in South, I'm trying to remember, we, we had dinner somewhere. I think it was in South Africa. I think that's right. 15 years ago or something. Yeah. Yes. I won't ask any more questions. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's an honor for me to be here today to talk about uh, biological threats and global uh, security. I'd like to address actually four areas, but one area uh, Mike Osterholm dealt with in depth, so I'm going to take out of my remarks, and that's the issue of um, supply chain management, which I, it's, a, it's a hidden issue. He is the one who's been talking about it. We are about to issue a second policy paper on in our pandemic uh, policy initiative at the Scowcroft Institute, and we're going to include a whole section on this because that is not being dealt with. It is a huge risk for the United States. And we saw what happened with the hurricane in, in uh, Puerto Rico, how vulnerable it is. Another vulnerability, uh, when the hurricane came in, um, was it 2005, 2004, uh, that hit Louisiana, it came within a few miles of the huge USAID food warehouses. And it didn't hit. If it had hit those warehouses, we would have had large-scale starvation in refugee camps and displaced camps around the world. And we were all watching, uh, the whole staff at AID was watching, saying, what if that it turns just a few miles and all those warehouses are destroyed? So a lot of our systems are more fragile than we realize in terms of emergency response. The, the third um, is the need to increase private sector involvement. That was also discussed. But finally, I want to deal with the issue of organizational dysfunction and management and implementation. Uh, you mention, everybody mentions, policy, science, and technology. The fourth component of that is the one we fail at the most, and that is implementation. And in organizational structure and management, it is a boring subject. When I used to bring it up at AID, I said, that's not for us to deal with, but it is. All federal agencies and UN agencies, NGOs, have to deal with the same set of issues, and we have not adequately even do, done research in this area. Uh, so in terms of leadership, uh, it should be a top priority, and we have uh, endorsed the recommendations that you have made in terms of centralizing leadership responsibility. I believe in the vice president's office, Correct. we have done the same thing, recognizing Good. your initial uh, recommendation and, and, and said that makes a lot of sense. I, I would recommend that it be done right now in the White House with, with the vice president. Uh, I think the... A epo uh, the Ebola epidemic demonstrated that we need several central points at which decisions could be made rapidly. And that time is the greatest enemy of all emergency response, whether it's in um, a natural disaster, a flood, an earthquake, or a storm, a civil war, or a famine, or an epidemic. Time is of the essence. The longer you the delay, the more people that die. The more, the, the longer the, the delay between the time we, we know it's happening, the time we respond, the, the less options we have available to us to respond. And ultimately, it increases the level of failure if we take too long in responding. One of the fights that went on in the White House, I'm told by friends of mine in the career service, uh, during Ebola, and this, is, this, this would have happened in the Bush White House or the Trump White House, it doesn't make any difference who's the president, is there was a fight between, and they may not admit this publicly, but my old staff was telling me, and there's a huge food fight over who will lead the response. Will it be DOD, CDC, USAID, State Department, NIH was really not advocating to lead the, the uh, operational response. I will not say exactly who said what, 
but I'm told several agencies said we will not work with X agency. And I, I said that's a little odd for a federal agency telling the President of the United States that they refuse to work with another federal agency. But the feelings are so intense, the President was saying, well, you know, what is going on here? What, what is this intense rivalry between uh, agencies that's slowing down the response? And it took two months to sort this out. I think he made the right decisions to have the DART team from AID in charge with a, a deputy from CDC in the DART team, and then DOD agreed voluntarily, which is what usually happens in these emergencies, for DOD to report to the disaster assistance response team, which they're used to working together on natural disasters and man-made. Over 30 years they've been doing this. So they have, have established procedures that work very well. So I would add just parenthetically, uh, going back to that case of not inside but outside, while all this is going on inside the administration, uh, the news networks are focused on every development. You know, once it becomes the story of the day or the week. So it's very clear to the rest of us out here that it's not clear who's actually in charge. And that's, uh, that's not a good feeling. The first principle... That's a White House failure. I mean, I would have fired a CDC director that said to me they wouldn't work with another agency that was led. I mean, that's... Uh, the president or his chief of staff should have simply said, you guys are going to all work together or we're going to get your resignation. It, do, it does happen table. fairly often, uh, uh, Dr. Shirley. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have watched it in front of me. <laughs> uh, usually, as I was uh, uh, in the Army Reserves. I was retired as a lieutenant colonel, and I have a little part of the military in me, and so when I'm given an order that's very clear, I salute, carry the order out. The Defense Department usually, but not always, well, is the only federal department, if you give them a direct order in writing and it's very clear they will carry it out, that's a, one of the only federal agencies that actually does that. And they st sometimes resist themselves, even though they won't tell you that. So, so, so leadership is very important. Leadership of the United States and the international system counts. In fact, we're seeing now what happens when the United States is not in a leadership role, as it's had been for 70 years. And this has begun to slip even before the Trump administration. The, the nature of the international order is changing. And we're going to see, I don't know if you remember that, that movie um, uh, that was written, uh, that was uh, produced, I think in the late, uh, early 40s, uh, what happens if um, this this character uh, didn't live in a particular town? What was it's a very famous movie. Everybody watches it at Christmas time. Donna Reed is in it. Oh, it's a Wonderful Life. Wonderful Life. Well, well, right. we, we are sort of like uh, uh, Jimmy Stewart. I mean, we're going to see what the world looks like without uh, that honorable man uh, in that in in, uh, in in the movie. Because even though we do act in our national interest. We have a side to us that provides leadership when it's not in our parochial interest. It's just in, in, the, in the interest of global leadership. And Republicans and Democrats have been doing that since the end of World War II. And as our power in the international system uh, subsides, we're going to see uh, more ultranationalism by countries around the world. And the consequence of that, in my view, is going to be disastrous. The progress we've made is going to deteriorate. Alex DeWall, who's a scholar, a British scholar, he teaches uh, in Boston, I think at Tufts now, and Alex is an old friend of mine, and he wrote a book called Mass Starvation, and he tracked the number of famine deaths in the last 150 years. He said the only time in history that there's been a substantial drop 
And the number of people dying of starvation and famines is since 1980. And that is because of both the globalization of the world food system, which is primarily private, but it's also because the emergency response system of the United Nations, the World Food Program, the ICRC, the NGOs, and the aid agencies like AID and DFID and the European Union have developed a system that is very effective in preventing star starvation deaths. So he shows dramatic drop, and he says in the book, this is a function of the international, which he used to be very critical of. It's now working. I'm afraid it's going to start deteriorating if we don't pay attention to it. So leadership counts. The second thing that is very important from our perspective is the involvement of private industry, uh, not just the pharmaceutical industry, but all private industry, because all industry that operates in the developing world in particular has to worry about their workforce. Whatever they're doing, whether they're oil companies or mining companies or manufacturing plants, their workforce will be devastated. And many of them have done emergency planning, but they haven't done it in, in, in a group uh, they've done it individually within their own corporations. And we, they have not been in, in, engaged in this with the U.S. government or the international system, and I think that's a, a weakness that needs to be corrected. We also uh, believe at the Scowcroft Institute, and we will have this in our the next policy paper we produce, which is coming out in a few weeks, is that the... Um, that we need to alter the incentive structure in the private markets to make it profitable for companies to take technology that's already been developed. Science has already done the research. Technology is there. The problem is implementation. It has not been mass produced. Why? These are vaccines. There's the different kinds of drugs that would be extremely useful in the developing world. It's because the market's not there. They're not going to do this just because it's a nice thing to do. And so we need to alter the structure of the markets through, uh, we, we have an example of this already, what's called GAVI, Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunizations, which was started 18 years ago. Uh, it's been very successful, but it's narrow in its focus. It promised the pharmaceutical companies, if you, we know you already have this drug, this va vaccine. If you mass produce it, we will guarantee you a market uh, through the NGO community and the aid agencies in the UN. And, and that's been effective, but it's narrow. We need to take the, the success stories of Gavi and now expand it. And the final issue is this question of implementation that I mentioned earlier. One thing everybody talks about, everybody talks about in the international system and in the US government is the need for more coordination. I tell my students at, at, when I taught at Georgetown, if you mention the word coordination, I'm gonna throw you out the window. I mean, that's rhetorically, of course, only. Uh, because it doesn't mean anything. The word coordination has so many different definitions, and the bigger problem with it as, as a word is people don't understand what it means. It means you're going to slow down responses. Coordination is inversely related to speed in emergency operations. The more you coordinate, the slower you are. Why is that? It means you're working with other agencies and other departments that have conflicting missions to what you have, conflicting business systems. Uh, they have for forces that are trained differently and have a different worldview. If you want to deal with, look at what AID does versus the Pentagon versus HHS uh, or the Treasury Department or State Department. I used to sit on the NSC meetings for a long time watching this conflict of missions. That is really not a function of partisan politics or even ideology. It's a function of bureaucratic differences in business systems. So if we want to coordinate, it should be done in terms of preparedness. 
in terms of making the decisions ahead of time, not in the middle of the emergency, how the system's going to work. But in terms of flipping the switch, it cannot be done centrally. It has to be done at the lowest level, and I'll give you an example of what I mean. I ran the Office of Foreign Disaster Assistance almost 30 years ago for President George H.W. Bush. We call him 41 at the Bush School. And that was a little office in AID, Larry Eagleburger's cable after the Skopje earthquake in 1962 or 63 in Macedonia led to the creation of this office. When I started, it had 45 staff and $20 million annual appropriation. Today, it has a $2 billion budget with 700 staff. It's about to be merged with Food for Peace. The total budget between Food for Peace and OFDA will be $4 billion with 1,000 employees in AID. Okay? Now, I tracked this for a book I've been writing on what it looks like over 30 years. It's almost a straight line through the Bush administration, the first 41, through the Clinton administration, through the second 43 administration, and through the Obama administration. And it's continuing, even though there were cuts in OMB. This, the Congress restored all the cuts. It's very bipartisan. Either Senate Senator Helms and uh, Patrick Buchanan, when they ran for, for when uh, Buchanan ran for president, she should abolish all aid programs except for the emergency response programs. So even the hard isolationist right says leave those programs alone. So it has broad bipartisan support, which is why it's grown. And the audits and evaluations have shown it's very effective. The utility for this discussion today is it requires three positive yeses to mobilize the OFDA team. The director of OFDA, which is way down in the bureaucratic structure, is not in a Senate-confirmed position, has to say yes. The ambassador, the U.S. ambassador in the country has to say yes in a cable that's already written. It's written, you just put in the name of the country and the type of disaster. It's sent to Washington, and the country has to say, yes, we need help. because of simplicity and because of a minimal number of yeses that are required to move forward. The more agencies you have involved, the more yeses that are required, all the implementation literature shows, it slows everything down to a crawl. There's a book by Aaron Woldavsky called Implementation. It's nothing to do with pandemics, but the lessons from that book are very, very applicable to the issues we're dealing with from a management standpoint right here. So I have five very quick comments on in terms of how we should uh, deal with these implementation and management issues. One, do not reinvent the organizational wheel or the federal agency system. Don't create a new bureaucracy. Two, do not try, in the case of international aid programs or emergency response, to, to transplant what works well in a Western country automatically assuming that it'll work well in a developing country, because frequently it does not, because of culture and 
Uh, that's why you need anthropologists and technical experts to tell you whether this system that's worked in the United States uh, is going to work in Nigeria or going to work in, uh, in, in um, Peru. Third, coordination, as I mentioned earlier, is inversely related to speed, particularly when you're dealing with an outbreak of a, of a, of a disease, a pandemic. Fourth, do not confuse emergency response with other organizational biomanagement issues. And I just, I don't know if that term exists, but I made it up, biomanagement. Um, and, and so you, doing coordination between agencies before the emergency is very important. That's why we need the vice president's involvement. But once the event takes place, we need to decentralize the decision-making process to the lowest levels and minimize the number of people who have to approve it or we won't get there in time. And finally, organizations which train together in emergency response are proven uh, by a lot of literature, both domestic emergency response and international emergency work much better together if they train together. They do simulations together. They, that's why the Defense Department is constantly training, constantly. 20% of the Defense Department budget is used for training before wars take place. And I would argue if we want to make our system work, it's not enough just to make the organizational decisions. We have to get the units together in the government they are going to be doing the response after the decisions have made organizationally and actually have them work the problems together in exercises before the actual event takes place. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, we'll come back to uh, some of what you said, Dr. Dowell. Uh, thanks for being here. Well, thanks very much for your op opportunity to speak with you all. <clears throat> I'm going to make just one recommendation, and um, I, some of what I say will reinforce what Andy just said. Maybe not all of it, uh, but uh, I once got a basket of chicken products from the Prime Minister of Thailand. And uh, if you bear with me for just a couple of minutes, I can explain why that's relevant to what we're talking about here. <laughs> I, was, I was actually there, sent by CDC for four years to start what became the first global disease detection center. <clears throat> and uh, those were the years, uh, it was 2001 to 2005, so the years of SARS and avian influenza. We dealt with SARS first. It came to Thailand actually in the lungs of a, of a physician named Carlo Urbani, who was a colleague, worked, worked for the WHO in, in Hanoi, and described some of the first cases. Um, he got sick on the way to Thailand, and I ended up um, taking him to the hospital and making sure he was cared for safely through about a three-week period. Uh, and during that period, the SARS epidemic evolved quickly across Southeast Asia. If you weren't in Asia at the time, it's hard to appreciate how um, frightening and uncertain that time was. We really weren't sure which way it was going to go. Um, it ended up having, he, he ended up dying, uh, but the virus didn't spread from him. And Thailand ended up having seven SARS cases, uh, so not a large number. Um, and the initial response that was led by the Ministry of Public Health was taken over uh, when it became clear that tourism was being impacted. And so despite the small number of cases, it impacted the economy of Thailand for a limited period of time in a substantial way. Once they got through SARS, avian influenza hit, and this was different. Uh, influenza H5N9 had an even higher mortality in humans than SARS did. 
and it uh, killed upwards of 50% of the people it infected, but of course it spread mainly in chickens and killed thousands of chickens, and tens of thousands were being culled. So avian influenza had an impact on the agricultural side. We had set up uh, with our Thai colleagues for SARS what was called, they called a war room. We would call it an emergency operations center now. And um, that war room was activated for avian influenza, but it quickly became apparent that the epidemic was beyond the capabilities of the health department. And so the agriculture was involved, the military got involved in the culling of the birds. Um, again, transportation, trade, and uh, tourism were impacted. And so the prime minister said, we can't have this run by the Ministry of Public Health and appointed a deputy prime minister to organize it. And I remember the deputy prime minister is a very capable person who um, did his best to organize the different departments, but he had no experience in managing an epidemic and also didn't have experience in directing the resources of the Ministry of Defense or the Ministry of Health or any of these other ministries that he had to direct. And so he did his best to make it up as he went along. And again, the number of human cases of avian influenza was relatively small, and so it worked out okay. Um, so that was the backdrop. I got this call saying, the prime minister wants to see you. And I, I said, really? Uh, I wasn't expecting it. So I called the U.S. Embassy. And I said, well, what do I do if the prime minister wants to see me? And they said, well, you go. And so I got in the car and went down. You may have been at government house in, in Thailand, but it's this set of beautiful little buildings and this green grass and I got out and they directed me to one of them and I kind of smoothed down my suit and walked in. There was a security guy sitting there and um, I told him, I think I'm supposed to be meeting with the prime minister. And he said, over there. And so I walked over to this room that was, the door was cracked open and sure enough, I could see the prime minister who I recognized from the newspapers and the minister of public health and the deputy prime minister, and I assumed all the other ministers having a meeting. So I went in there, and um, it was myself and a Robert Webster as a virologist, influenza virologist, were the foreigners who were there. And we heard some of the discussion over the next 15 or 20 minutes as they finished up their discussion about the avian influenza, and then they had some questions for us about this uh, little cluster we had investigated where it was person-to-person -person transmission for the first time, and it, it, was that going to be a big problem? It turned out it wasn't. Um, answered their questions and got up and were presented with these baskets of chicken products from Chiron Products Farm as a major agricultural uh, part of, of Thailand. So I tell you about this rather surreal experience um, to emphasize the point that Andy made, that the time to invent the response to the epidemic is not during the epidemic. And pandemics are not simply large epidemics. P pandemics, one of the main differences is they by necessity involve lots of sectors beyond health. And what we've seen over and over again, not in, just in Thailand, but in a number of other countries, certainly at the UN and, and here, is that when 
an epidemic threatens to become a pandemic and involves other sectors, the health sector is not able to respond by itself. And the response to that is invented at that time and put together and people like the deputy prime minister do their best to invent things as they go. So when I read, reread your um, blueprint that you sent us in advance of this, the part that jumped out at me, of course, was this part where you recommended that the vice president be empowered and authorized to lead this. And I don't know, you know better than I, far better than I, about whether it's the vice president or some other structure that will work best in, in the U.S. government. But what's clear to me is that in epidemic after epidemic, the procedure of inventing this above the health sector solution during the course of it is not the right way to go. And so if it's possible to figure this out within the U.S. government, uh, that would be tremendously valuable as a model for other governments and for the UN who stumbled around with an Ebola. It was UNMIR. Uh, there's been a series of these things. So it would be an important contribution, and my recommendation would be to pull that out, reinforce it. Um, whatever you can do to make that happen, we would be certainly strongly in favor. Thank you. <clears throat> did, did you eat the chicken parts? You don't yeah, have to they, answer the question. It was a beautiful. <laughs> it was actually a beautiful basket of chicken parts. Yeah. I wanted to save it as a souvenir, but you yeah. I mean, they were going to do it go bad. Incidentally, I, I should say really briefly that, to a certain extent, we first we saw this problem of a lack of coordination that you both talked about, and uh, then we kind of backed into recommending the vice president because we couldn't we, we couldn't identify anybody else that we thought had the authority to do. What had to be done across all the departments, except the president, and that was not didn't seem appropriate. Uh, Dr. Cameron, thank you. Thanks. Thank, thanks so much for inviting me here today, and I'm delighted to be back in front of the, the panel. Um, when, when I was last here, I was uh, representing the o Obama um, administration, NSC, and so it's it's nice to to be back. Um, so I am with NTI, and NTI, as I think most of many of you know, um, was founded by former Senator Sam Nunn and philanthropist Ted Turner in 2001, and actually before September 11th, before the anthrax attacks, before SARS. Um, but it's always included as part of its broader mission, uh, biosecurity. And um, our current CEO, Ernie Moniz, and, and Senator Nunn both prioritize this. And so my job is to look at today's threat and to think about what it is that we can do in the non-governmental world to catalyze um, new, new programs, new policies, new activities to really um, to address the new facets of this problem as we, as we find them. Um, and so to that end, um, since I am the last speaker of the day, um, I have four recommendations. I, I was sent to do three, but I always I try to overachieve. So I have four, and I'm not actually going to dwell on challenges because I think you've heard a lot of challenges over the day. I'd agree with many of the challenges that I, that I heard today and have been here for other sessions before. I would like to thank you for focusing on the transnational element of this threat. I'll, I'll say that when I first heard about the Blue Ribbon Study Panel, when I was sitting at the NSC, my one concern with the term biodefense is I was very worried it would only focus on domestic issues, and Asha knows this because we spoke um, at length at that point. And it's great that you've actually managed to integrate those issues throughout all of your panel discussions and throughout the report. And I think it's done a great service um, in the community by giving um, a mechanism for different pieces of the community to even come to these meetings and, and talk to each other. So thank you for that. 
Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm not actually going to talk about the vice president recommendation, although I'm happy to answer questions about it and have in the past. Um, but I'm going to talk a little bit about um, uh, four things that I think we should pay more attention on globally, which relate to health security broadly and the recommendation a little bit to the recommendation 33 in your report, but also the biosecurity elements of it. So if you think about health security as a panoply of activities that help countries, um, including our own, prevent, detect, and respond to biological threats, biosecurity is the piece that focuses on intentional threats, just to shorthand. And so these are important pieces of, of a spectrum. Um, but one of, the, one of the things that we really wanted to achieve with the global health security agenda was embedding biosecurity into the broader public and animal health response world. Um, not to say that it shouldn't also be focused on by the security sector, but to actually make sure that it, it was a, a key focus for, for the elements that, that actually control the laboratories and, and largely the, the response until we get to the, the crisis point anyway. Um, so first and foremost, um, you've heard a lot about leadership. I'm going to echo that, but I'm going to break it down into a few pieces of leadership. So the U.S. should continue to lead, not only on broad health security, but biosecurity. Um, and I think one way that we can lead is actually about framing. So thinking about our deployed CDC and USAID experts, not only as, um, as implementers, which I think is critically important, um, but also as biodefense assets and framing them that way. They are our deployed biodefense assets. Um, and thinking about them and their budgets in that context as we're looking at the rest of national defense, I think is really um, continues to be important. So framing it that way, I think is, is the right thing to do. And to that end, um, bringing home people who are deployed overseas working on this mission uh, is not a good idea, in my view. And that's something that's been spoken about a lot um, in the press. And um, I remain concerned, despite some um, optimism in the FY18 omnibus for those programs getting some increases, um, I remain concerned um, to see people, from, especially from uh, CDC, uh, coming back from some of the countries that they've just built up a presence in, because detecting an outbreak at the source and stopping it there is definitely best for the country, and it's certainly best for us, too. Um, the second, the second piece of leadership um, is obviously uh, resources, but not just for state and USAID, which I think we talk about a lot, and not for just USAID and CDC, which we talk about a lot when we talk about health and health security, but also the DOD and State Department cooperative threat reduction programs. And I haven't heard them mentioned since I've been here. I don't know if they were mentioned earlier today. But these programs sync up hand in glove with the programs at CDC and aid. And they are roughly, I did a back of the envelope calculation over the summer, they're roughly two thirds of the world's funding for biosecurity. So those programs are carrying the load for everyone else. Um, and they're not increasing. They're actually, um, in the case of DOD, they have historically been decreasing as a function of the rest of CTR. And I think that's a problem because we now have the ability to look at um, how countries are doing with health security because we have some metrics that the world's agreed to. And some of those metrics are for biosecurity. And when you look at them and you look at the countries that have been evaluated, 75% of the countries that have published these evaluations either have limited or no biosecurity capability. So that's a problem um, and it's something that I'm, I'm worried about. Um, I think we also need to make sure that the security elements are part of the discussion about health security. I think that does happen here. We have, we have pretty good coordination. We have some synergy, too, in addition to coordination. Um, but around the world, you don't often see ministers of defense 
or ministers of foreign affairs or their delegates at these meetings. Um, one of the things that we're doing with the government of Canada and also with some support from the Open Philanthropy Project is we're putting together um, a, a, an, an activity called the Global Biosecurity Dialogue, which is intended to bring senior officials from ministries of foreign affairs, defense, health, and agriculture together to talk about barriers um, to improving biosecurity and to make sure that it remains a critical part of the global health security agenda as it moves into the future. So that's number one, leadership, but broken down a few ways. Number two um, is this element that Terry Taylor spoke about really well um, early, earlier today, and that's paying attention to emerging risks, including those that are associated with advances in technology. Um, and I'll echo what you heard from Terry and a number of other people, that we need innovation in technology to get to health security, food security, and environmental security. So that's critical. But it's undeniable that the democratization of this technology is increasing the likelihood that disease threats can be made and modified from scratch. And we know from seeing horsepox published recently, synthesized and published recently, that smallpox can be created from scratch. Um, and that's just what we can imagine today. So um, while we have had a, a pretty robust debate in the US and around the world um, in many governments about this, issue. Um, the technical community themselves, I think, um, could we could do a service by bringing them together around um, emerging risks and, and specifically um, challenging a community of experts to come up with actual international norms um, surrounding emerging risks posed by advances in technology. This was something that um, the Fink Report, which was published in 2004, um, actually recommended, and it was never fully implemented, that there should be an actual international forum. And, and I'm not saying a treaty, um, because I agree with Terry that by the time you get governments together around these risks, the technology is often uh, superseded, whatever, or changed, uh, whatever you need to do. But I do think there need to be nimble ways for technology um, experts themselves, as they're creating technology, to think about the risk and also to challenge them to think about safer and secure um, technologies. So in the cybersecurity world, we have people who are technology, you know, technology experts who are building you know, um, cybersecurity elements. We don't really have a technical biosecurity cadre. We have policy wonks and we have laboratorians, but we don't really have a technical cadre, and I think we, we probably need one. Um, so the third thing that I would say um, is, in the third recommendation that I have, is um, transparency and um, accounting for, for gaps and commitments around the world. And, and what I mean by that is that we, we now have a situation where post Ebola, a bunch of countries, including our own, made a lot of commitments um, to do better themselves, to help others, to do work in their regions, and making sure that there is a mutual accountability framework um, for that um, is really important um, to track uh, who's doing what and whether they're living up to what they said that they were going to do in a positive way. Um, in addition to that, while we also have um, external evaluations now being implemented by the WHO, um, which are actually going relatively well, um, 70 countries have done them. Most countries, the, not all countries will do them. They're voluntary. And we do think that there should be a, a, a global accounting for all countries and how they're actually doing on health security. And so um, we are uh, developing a global health security index with um, support from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the Open Philanthropy Project, which will include um, all countries, uh, we hope, and we'll be able to track on a regular basis um, how countries are doing. 
and I'm happy to answer more questions about that. But in the interest of time, I'll move to my last recommendation, which, um, which gets at um, some elements that were discussed on the last panel as well. So disease surveillance um, has, has long been uh, a focus of our work, not only domestically, but abroad. And when you look at the intersection of our need to detect threats early and where technology is going to help us do that, um, the ability to gain information in real time, analyze it, and share it um, are, still, um, are still barriers. And there are many reasons why there are barriers in those different component parts. But putting a very concerted global focus on and figuring out what each of those barriers are to sharing information, to analyzing it, and to utilizing it in real time, I think would be um, a huge service. And it will take a very uh, large um, decadal project, in my view, to be able to do that well. And I'll just leave you um, with this. Biological threats are one of the only species-ending potential threats that we have uh, in the world to face. Um, and so focusing on global catastrophic biological risks um, is important in our ability to detect novel, emerging, changed, and modified threats, uh, whether naturally occurring, intentional, or deliberate, um, is critical, and we're not where we need to be. So thanks for your emphasis on this. Thank you. That's a, uh, that's a big way to end. <laughs> uh, it gives us some sense of responsibility to sustain the species. Uh, but, but you're right. Um, I know that some of my colleagues have to leave uh, pretty soon. I wonder if you want to ask some last questions, uh, Donna or Ken, um, before you have to go. Yeah, just a, a, a point about the management of crises, because you'll remember that um, the that organization they put together with the USAID's unit in the lead was, in fact, um, replaced by uh, the president appointing the former chief of staff for the vice president to uh, coordinate it, which, which reinforces our view that major crises have to be managed out of the White House and perhaps out of the Vice President's uh, office. Um, it requires not just the management skills and a clear decision about who the lead is, but I think a force of personality um, that can get people to work together, but also that has uh, the support of the White House of the president and the vice president in particular. These are tricky uh, issues. Or the person has direct access to the president, as James Lilly Witt did, the FEMA director during the Clinton administration. We all worked for him. I mean, there was no question in, in my people's mind when we were dealing with, uh, with Andrew, for example, that everybody worked for him and, and and he could get the president directly uh, on the phone, but it was well coordinated. It certainly wasn't an Ebola outbreak. Um, um, and my second point would be, um, we can work out the management. Most presidents, when they hire people, do not ask the question, "Can you have you had any management experience? That's the other problem here. Um, and so if you don't have a series of people that have access to the president that have had extensive management experience, um, you really are flying around trying to figure out. And, and I always felt badly for the CDC because they weren't organized to manage a big crisis. They were organized to give advice, um, to be really the consultants, to be the scientists 
that would give advice. They had very well-trained people, but um, they're not a line organization in the traditional sense. The, the local county um, health administrators are more line administrators, as are the state people. They don't have a series of people they can order around that can implement um, an overall strategy, but they certainly have to be there because they're critical to getting the science right and getting the facts right um, as part of that. Um, so my great worry is that we don't think about the management skills as we're appointing people across the board for some of these critical appointments and we're going to need to if we're going to be managing these things in the future. Just add a couple of comments. I agree with most of what you said, Dr. Shalala. Uh, but I learned painfully, because I had no background in emergency response when I started as OFDA director in 1989. I was giving the field orders, even though I'd never been to the country, when we sent out DART teams. And I learned that all the decisions I was making were stupid decisions, because I was not there. They were there. They were watching what was happening. They were recommending to me. And I learned what I had to do was to support them. My job was to get everyone else out of their way so they get their job done. If they needed more resources, more staff, more money, I, I could get them and manage the politics with the Hill. I'll tell you one quick story. I had uh, five members of Congress, since I was a former legislator senator, I'm not being critical of legislators, uh, call me up yelling at me because on the front page of the Washington Post during the Kurdish emergency when those million Kurds went up after the first Gulf War into Turkey because Saddam's people were massacring them. There is a meningitis epidemic. How come you're not immunizing all the children? We had a CDC doctor uh, from um, Mike Toole from Australia, very famous guy. He was on the team. He said, Andrew, there is no meningitis epidemic. The Washington Post reporter knows nothing. He's not a medical doctor. And I said, Michael, if you tell me there's no, then there is no epidemic. So I yelled actually at the staffs in Congress. And I said, since when are we taking the Washington Post as a source of information of what's happening on the ground? When you have a, a, a natural immunity, you don't, which the Kurds do, the Kurds have natural immunity to meningitis. You do not immunize all the adults because you break down their natural immunity. He said, it's stupid to do that. In fact, it's counterproductive. So I said, my job is to protect you, Michael, and the DART team from having people in Congress or the news media or the White House beating you up for doing something that you shouldn't be doing. And I learned very early on well, that's that... That's exactly what happened in Ebola in yes. West Africa. Once they got the resources, they were making decisions on the ground. Right. That's the best way to do it. Tom? Well, Joe, I just first of all thank all of our our experts today. I think this has just been an extraordinary day, and the presentations have just been consistently uh, uh, extraordinarily informative. Um, Andrew, I, I think you've sensitized me to the word coordination. Uh, I think uh, I, I think that's fitting. Uh, I, I would say, though, I, I think we have to be cognizant of the importance of semantics, and uh, we have to come up with words that describe what it is we need to do. And it seems to me we have to tear down the silos. We have to create far greater managerial authority and responsibility, and I like your your, your delegation of responsibility to the lowest levels. But somehow all of that is needed, and uh, I, I don't know that implementation 
in and of itself fits. I mean, I could see independent implementation that would be counterproductive and actually create more problems without some degree of effort of understanding how you, how you bring all of the entities together to create more of a unified force going forward. And I, so I, I, I take your point about coordination, and we overuse it. Oftentimes, excessive bureaucracy is a result of too much coordination, and that's your point. But I think we still have to be cognizant of the need to, to do a lot better job of bringing the entities together than we do today. Well, just, just to add, in, 19, in 2003, we assigned for the first time permanently senior foreign service office to all the regional combatant commands, and they're still there. Not the same officers. We rotate them. But they're permanently at the headquarters, and they do actual exercises with the military. And they become friends with them, and they trust each other. I, have to, I, I, I will not mention who it was, but during a major emergency before I was aid administrator, I remember a Marine four-star general saying, maybe I shouldn't say this, I won't say it in public, but he said some very derogatory remarks about humanitarians. And I said, General, it's very easy for you in the field with tanks and weapons, and I'm a former military officer, to uh, go into a war zone. You know, our people don't have guns when we go in. The real heroes are the aid workers from AID and the United Nations and the NGOs and the ICRC that go in without any protection at risk into a war zone. So don't make any comments about who's tougher, okay? So he apologized, but no one says that now in the regional combatant commands because they realize what the AID culture is, that they're very brave people in these agencies to do that kind of work. Why is that the case? Because they actually train together. And one of the emergency response principles is work the exercise. They keep saying that. Write the exercise down together as a group and then work it. And once you start seeing how the thing actually works, how the NGOs work, how the AID uh, Office of Foreign Disaster, how the ECHO Office in the European Union, which is like OFDA, and, and how the ICR, and then you understand how these pieces all fit together. But you don't do it intellectually. You do it when you actually work the, 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 the exercises. You actually have tabletop exercises, then field training exercises. That's the way you coordinate, to use the, uh, an abused term. Um, yeah, I appreciate Tom's question, because I wanted to clarify the difference between our support and yours of the office of the vice president to be the leader and your concern that coordination can slow things up. So I take it you're distinguishing between coordination and leadership. It's the distinction between preparing before the event. Yeah. That's what I'm, that, That's we do need coordination then. Right. We need the vice president, but we do not have the vice president giving orders to the teams in the field. I don't care who the person is. Uh-huh. That's the difference. Once the emergency takes place, you trust the people who you've trained, who've trained together, who know what they're doing, who've done this over and over again, who have standard operating procedures. You don't want, for example, during a war, having people in the White House, any White House, giving orders to battalion commanders in the field as about how they're supposed to be fighting the war. That's why we have military officers. As part of that preparation, uh, roles have been assigned so people aren't overlapping each other in ways they're getting in each other's way. Uh, Dr. Dell, I wanted to ask you this question. Um, a, f a few years ago, I was at the Munich Security Conference, and Bill Gates was there. Gave a a great uh, talk about the uh, take care of folks about the uh, thre bio threats, 
and uh, I felt really, uh, we, I'd already started, I felt really, uh, oh, I don't know, encouraged by his interest. Uh, and I've, I've seen every now and then he's spoken again about it. Has the Gates Foundation actually uh, supported programs that, um, that deal with the bio threat? He has continued to uh, prioritize this and, in fact, is giving a, uh, the Shattuck Lecture uh, day after tomorrow at the Massachusetts uh, Medical Society uh, focused on uh, epidemic innovations that are needed. So it, it's top of mind for him. Uh, and the foundation has, uh, in a series of responses, sort of backed into uh, engaging on epidemic preparedness. So it has not been a priority for the Gates Foundation historically. Um, we got into it with Ebola uh, in a smaller way, again with Zika, and now we have a, a small um, strategy around epidemic preparedness coordination uh, that we're uh, making modest investments in. So uh, I think the answer is yes, and also that we recognize that the major job of health security, as with all security, is a government function, and that we will never displace the role of governments in doing that function. Agreed. But, but there is a really important role to play. Actually, he's playing it by speaking out, because it educates people. Um, uh, Dr. Billy, you know, I saw you do something that's rarely done in Washington. You uh, gave your microphone to someone else. <laughs> this is really very rare. And uh, do you, uh, as a full-fledged uh, and quite distinguished uh, veterinarian, do you want to, uh, you talked to me during one of the breaks about the zoonotic effect. Do you want to have the last word on some of the testimony today and the way it uh, validated our concern about zoonotic effects? Thank you, Senator. Um, I was going to say yes, and I, I'm, I'm a doctor, but I actually know how to implement, so that's why I handed you the microphone. Um, <laughs> Yes, I am supposed to. I was my kind of my responsibility to mention something about zoonotic diseases in One Health, but I'm not going to. Okay. Um, and I don't think we have time for questions, but we would love to be able to follow up with you and the previous speakers um, to get some information that we can use for the report. And I, I'm going to use this principle, um, and I think all of you have referred to it, but you know, kind of a management principle, you know, good leadership and you have to know when to lead, and sometimes you need to know when to follow, and, and also you have to know when to kind of get out of the way. Um, and I think all of you have been talking, now all of you are in the private sector, which is a great timing, and some of our other speakers. Um, and so we can only make so many demands of government, um, but we also can make some suggestions on how government can facilitate other actors to work well. So. I'd like for us to be able to follow up with you and start thinking about that, about what the federal government can do, because that's kind of our audience who we're, we're aiming for. Um, but what also can they do or don't need to do that would make this world a better place and a safer place? How can they facilitate that? How can they make the private sector um, more effective or more engaged where they can help, those kinds of things. So I'd love to, if we could follow up with all of our speakers today there. Excellent. <clears throat> that obviates the need for a closing statement by me. Uh, I, I want to thank this panel and everybody who's been here for your interest in this uh, problem, this threat. 
uh, and our our work on it. It's been a for me a very helpful and constructive day, and and I uh, thank you for that. Uh, we are now officially adjourned. Have a good day.